the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, it's a Monday. Share with you real quickly, going back into the mid-90s, one of the great shows I had at WIBC when I was in Indianapolis was with the Tuskegee Airmen. I had three of those gentlemen sit in my studio, and we sat down and we talked about World War II. We talked about racism. We talked about what it was like to fly with the Red Tails, and uh, it was an amazing hour that I spent with him. Today, I don't get an hour, get a half hour. But Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart Jr. is uh, joining us today. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel flew 43 combat missions during World War II, has since retired from active duty in the United States Air Force. That was done in 1950. For his flying prowess with the famed 332nd Fighter Group, Known as the uh, Red Tail, Stewart was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. He also was on the all-African-American team that won the first post-war Air Force-wide gunnery meet trophy for propeller-driven fighters. He was born in Virginia, 1924. He celebrated his 95th birthday on the 4th of July. He was raised in New York City's Harlem and Queens, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart now resides in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stewart, thanks so much for joining us today on the Dave Ellswick uh, Show. And as a vet of the Air Force, I salute you, sir, for your service. Thank you very much. Thank you for welcoming me. Well, let's talk about, now, that would put, I'm trying to think, if you are red-tailed, you would have been uh, stationed during World War II. Was it in Italy you guys were at? That's correct. In Italy, in a town called uh, Ramatelli, Italy, it was just off the heel of the boot in Italy on the Adriatic side. Now, there's a lot of bomber pilots that probably credit you and your compatriots during that time for their lives. Is that not true? Well, I, uh, that, that is true. And uh, there was a large contingent of, uh, of bombers, uh, B-17s and B-24s stationed. Uh, in that area, down around Foggia, Italy, it was the southern part of Italy there. I guess, you know, the the questions I know everybody wants me to ask are the obvious ones, which is you went and fought for your nation, you came back, you faced all kinds of discrimination. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, let's get that out of the way for everybody. Well, the first thing is uh, oftentimes I'm asked, you know, why did you do this? Uh, when uh, you weren't uh, given the full rights of, uh, of, of citizenships and uh, uh, your due uh, as a uh, uh, as an American citizen, and I retort that I am an American citizen, and at that time I was an American citizen. Mm-hmm. That this is my country, and I'm dedicated to fighting for this country. Uh, we were raised when I came up in school with a uh, uh, a very very strong sense of patriotism. And I was made to feel as uh, anyone else and uh, to respect the Constitution and uh, what it stood for and uh, 
That's exactly why I fought, and that's exactly why I would still defend the country against any foreign aggressor if it should occur. You know, a lot of people don't understand. It wasn't when you came back that you were you you were aware of uh, the discrimination. You faced discrimination while you were serving in World War II. That's true. Uh, you know, the, uh, African Americans are not trained. Uh, or were not given the opportunity to train as uh, as pilots for the uh, Army Air Corps prior to World War II. When the uh, Air Corps did recant and uh, say that we'll train these pilots, it was under the condition that they only train as a segregated unit and that they only be consigned uh, wherever they are as a segregated unit. So that's true. Uh, all of the time that uh, I served uh, in the service up until approximately 1949, I served in a segregated outfit and uh, uh, was not afforded the uh, uh, full benefits of the uh, uh, being a citizen or a soldier in the United States uh, Air Force. Well, you were you went through a training that. Uh you were told that you had to be better than everybody else, weren't you? Well, uh, that was sort of the understanding. I don't know if I was told that I had to be uh, better than anyone else, but uh, it certainly was obvious that uh, I was not wanted at the time, and I certainly had to show the best side of myself, and uh, the best side of myself uh, was only brought about by uh, a constant awareness of uh, of the position that I was in. Now, you guys went out on these different, uh, uh, op, you know, protective uh, missions that you flew during World War II. How many, how many uh, Nazi uh, fighter pilots were you all credited with shooting down? I don't know the total of number, you know, as far as the 332nd Fighter Group is concerned, and the 332nd Fighter Group and the Red Tails being the uh, combat arm of uh, all of the uh, uh, black airmen in the uh, 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 service at the time there. Uh, I think it might have been uh, some some number of maybe uh, 154 or something like that. I, I know that I was credited with... Uh, uh, downing three uh, enemy aircraft, as as far as I was concerned, but I got over into the uh, into the three thirty second and the uh, combat area uh, rather late uh, in the war. It was uh, January of nineteen forty five, and the war was over in uh, uh, May of uh, uh, nineteen forty five, and uh, I had managed to. Uh, uh, I get in 43 combat missions at the time. Talk about that first combat mission. Can you recall the feelings that you had when you took flight? Yes, uh, I'll be frank and say that I don't think I had a, uh, a, a, the slightest bit of understanding of what I was doing at the time. When I, when I got overseas, I was checked out in a matter of hours as far as the new aircraft was concerned. That was the P-51, which I had never flown before. And within a couple of days of that checkout, I had just gotten over to uh, uh, the air base in Italy. Uh, I was consigned or assigned to a uh, mission uh, going up into Germany. Uh, I 
asked, uh, you know, how do I, uh, just what am I responsible to do? And the uh, flight leader told me, he says, just fly my wing, that's all, and try to copy what I do. And uh, uh, it was uh, a real learning curve, but a fast learning curve that I had there. But uh, the first mission there, I was uh, awestruck by the uh, number of aircraft involved. We were escorting a large contingent of bombers uh, going north into Germany, but it wasn't long before uh, I had moved up to the position of uh, flight leader and uh, and uh, had pretty good understanding then of how a mission was formed and uh, how the whole operations took place. So on one mission... You shot down three enemy fighters. That must have been some dogfight you had up in the air. Well, yes, and I'd like to correct the uh, uh, that number there. Uh, I was given credit for uh, three uh, planes destroyed. Uh, just to give you go back and tell you how the mission occurred there, uh, uh, I was on a mission with the uh, other squadron that I was on to... Um, an area up in uh, Vienna. Uh, the Air Force or the Air Corps or headquarters had told us that at the end of the mission there where the bombers had released their bombs and were in safe territory as far as coming home was concerned, that a contingent of the fighters that uh, I was with at the time uh, would be consigned to going on a fight, what's known as a fighter sweep. There were seven of us that were on this fighter sweep, and uh, we were up around the Danube, uh, around Wells, uh, Air Drone, and uh, uh, we did run into a horde of uh, enemy fighters, and uh, uh, they were, we were outnumbered quite a bit, and uh, of the seven of us, uh, three of us were shot down. One was... Uh, damaged enough he could get back to uh, friendly Terry in Yugoslavia. The second pilot was shot down. He was killed instantly. The third one, his name was Walter Manning from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But anyway, uh, he managed to bail out of his aircraft. And when he alighted on the ground there, he was picked up by a, uh, a uh, Austrian mob and taken to the local jailhouse uh, uh, about three nights or two nights later, rather. Uh, another mob broke into the jail, uh, took him out, beat him up pretty badly, but then they uh, lynched him from a mm. flagpole. Oh. Uh, that was not too unusual or uh, what I would call absolutely unique. Uh, that happened to a number of uh, bomber crew members that uh, were bombing uh, over a period of time in uh, uh, Vienna and uh, rather in Austria and had the misfortune of uh, being shot down and landing uh, safely, uh, but uh, picked up by a mob and uh, executed mm. uh, as a uh, lesson and to place the fear uh, into the uh, air crew members that were flying up in that area. That's, that's amazing. It, you know, we don't hear those stories. A lot of people never hear those stories and, uh, men gave their lives for the freedoms that we have today. I I was lucky enough uh, while in the Air Force that I did the internal information for the U.S. Air Force for General Able at the Pentagon and uh, for radio over on Armed Forces Radio, now American Forces Radio. And I got to go to the Gathering of Eagles about three or four times. I, I met Gabby Grabowski and 
and some other folks and Doolittle and others, great American heroes. And I got to tell you, it, it is amazing to sit down and talk to those men and get their take of what World War II was like then and what the country is like now. Would you, would yes. you, would you like to talk about that a little bit? When you look at the country you see now, what do you think? Well, it's certainly uh, a different country than uh, when I was coming up or prior to World War II or at that time when I went into the service. Uh, the uh, social atmosphere was uh, completely different than now. And uh, uh, in large segments of the country, there was institutional segregation where uh, not only the schools uh, were segregated, but the transportation system, everything was segregated. Uh, as far as that was concerned, your restaurants, your uh, uh, other places of common gathering, your railroads. Even when I got on the train to go down to Mississippi and uh, when I reached the Mason-Dixon line there, I was told by the uh, conductor to go up to the front car. That was the colored car, he called it, or the Jim Crow car. And uh, that was the one that was reserved for uh, uh, <clears throat> colored people. And uh, that's what prevailed uh, most of the time that I was in the service. Uh, after the war and after I went to uh, Columbus, Ohio, and stationed there with the uh, uh, re- reorganized uh, uh, Tuskegee Airmen or uh, 332nd Fighter Group, uh, there was uh, Truman's doctrine that... Uh, announced that there would be uh, no more segregation in the uh, in the armed services but <clears throat> that didn't actually take place until 1949 and as far as the air corps was concerned the uh, uh, all of the black tuskegee airmen who were flying at the time there uh, they were stationed as i said in a uh, lockburn air force base columbus ohio and uh, it was in june of 1949 uh, the base was disbanded, and all of the personnel were sent to four corners of the earth there, and uh, complete integration uh, had taken place at that time. Even though integration of the uh, armed services had taken place, uh, I got out of the service in 1950, and I applied with a couple of airlines because I, I felt as though I had the required amount of uh, flying hours and training to uh, take a job in the airlines, but I was... Uh, uh, rejected uh, in, in both cases with uh, both airlines there. Uh, unfortunately, I could never follow my life's ambition in becoming a commercial airline pilot, but I must say that uh, a, a few years later, I should say maybe uh, 10 years later, that uh, the airlines are recanted just as the Air Corps did and started hiring uh, uh, black personnel, uh, African-Americans, as uh, uh, air crew members on the aircraft. Until today now, you'll find that every airline in the country has uh, uh, black pilots flying for us and uh, air crew members that are, are black there. In fact, uh, I mentioned that I guess it was a, a year or two ago I was uh, getting on a plane, and uh, I think it was in Detroit or Atlanta, but anyway, I looked in the cockpit there, and there were two uh, African-American uh, crew members who were flying the plane. It was a co-pilot, black co-pilot, and a uh, black pilot. Not only that, not only were they uh, 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 
flying, you know, flying the plane there in black, but they were female. Female. <laughs> so that was really something. But I mean, I'm just trying to show you between the um, uh, uh, extremes there what it was like before the uh, war there and what it is like today. So mm-hmm. to me, there has been absolute sea change and. Uh, and it's very, very gratifying, and it actually brings really a moment of uh, uh, reflection in my uh, mind when I when I see the progress that we've made in this country at the time. We're not there yet entirely. Uh, I mean, there's still, I, I wouldn't deny that uh, there are pits of, uh, of, of segregation within the country still, and uh, still some difficulties as far as race relations are concerned, but... It's certainly a change from what it was uh, when I first went into the service and what it is now. I, I would say so. My father always said that we were we were slowly but continually moving towards where we needed to go. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talk with you all that were with the Tuskegee Airmen, and I think about you, and I think, you know, a lot of people talk about civil rights, and, and we all, of course— and, and rightly so, talk about Dr. King and, and others, but you all were at the cusp of the beginning of all of this. I mean, you, you played an integral part in in breaking the pillars of racism in America. Uh, yes, I, 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 I would agree. Now I recognize it, even though I didn't recognize that we were making those great strides, you know, when I first went into the service and uh, before I uh, before I uh, uh, came out of the service. But, uh, you know, over a period of time, I can evaluate and see what's happened and uh, from the beginning and comparing the beginning uh, to the end there, there's just been a tremendous change. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. You're to be commended for not only your service, but for what you did uh, in advancing uh, you know, the, the destruction of, of uh, discrimination here in this country. Uh, let me take you back to when you guys came back from World War II. You were in a, a, a gunnery competition uh, for our listeners that would have no idea about prop-driven planes and, and, and gunnery. Explain to them what that competition was like. Well, the competition was the same, and the best analogy that I can give that the public might be able to understand uh, the Navy called the competition uh, Top Gun. Uh, they probably saw Tom Cruise and the Top Gun there, and uh, uh, that was the type of comp- uh, competition that it was, but this was restricted to the United States Air Force at the time. Uh, General Vandenberg, who was the chief of staff at the time, decided that he would like to resurrect uh, the pre-war gunnery meets that they used to have, and he asked that all of the 12... Uh, fighter groups that were in the country at the time, this is in uh, 1949, that they sent three of their uh, top pilots uh, to a a gunnery contest that would take place in uh, Nevada around the Las Vegas area out of the desert there. And this uh, contest involved both the jets that we had at the time there and the uh, piston-driven planes, the propeller-driven planes. what had happened, there were seven of the uh, uh, groups of the uh, 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 jet planes there and five groups of the uh, propeller. The propeller group was made up of P-51s mm-hmm. that were flying, 
and also P-47s that were flown by the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. But anyway, uh, to try to make a long story short, uh, the competition took place over a period of 10 days, and uh, <clears throat> it involved aerial gunnery at 20,000 feet, aerial gunnery at 10,000 feet, strafing, dive bombing, skip bombing, and uh, I think there were other couple of contests in there. I just don't remember offhand. But when the clouds uh, disappeared and everything else, it turns out that in the piston class, that's the fighters, the P-51 and the P-47s and that type of thing, the winners of that class were the Tuskegee Airmen. So that was uh, quite a feather in that uh, of the Tuskegee Airmen there. And I think that most of all, it proved that the Tuskegee Airmen were on par uh, with the rest of the Air Force uh, as far as the uh, uh, skills in uh, uh, handling and combat aircraft were concerned. Uh, not to say that they were that much better than anyone else, but uh, given another day, it may have been another group that uh, had won the contest there. But uh, this this period, it happened to be or the first uh, uh, United States Air Force gunnery meet. It happened to be the Tuskegee Airmen who won the uh, conventional class or the piston class involved. All right. Lieutenant Colonel Harry T. Stewart, Jr., World War II veteran, Tuskegee Airman, and uh, I'm sure you guys didn't expect to be revered the way you are today. You can walk with a little extra swagger. He's 95 years old. You sound like you're 50, sir. You're amazing <laughs> to listen to. You're, so, you're just so clear. We appreciate your time. I'm out of time. I'm going to try to get you set up for another interview here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And again, I salute you as a former vet of the U.S. Air Force and the great things that you did as uh, as an airman as well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Mm, bye-bye now. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart of the Tuskegee Airmen. He's 95 years old. Can you believe he's 95 years old? Listen to him talk like that. Unbelie- unbelievable. That was a great interview. I, I got goosebumps from that. All right, got to take a break. Let's do that here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you, Dave Ellswick Show. Don't forget about our good friends over at the Dwayne Smith Insurance Agency. They want to sit down with you. Look, you've just got to take the time to give them a call, set up an appointment, sit down with them, and then you're going to either save money or you're going to save money and get better coverage. It, 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 there's no downside to this. Call them at 501-819-0373 and uh, talk to one of the uh, professionals there at Dwayne Smith Insurance Agency. You might get Dwayne Smith. I don't know. You might get Jerry or some of the other guys that are there. And set an appointment up to sit down with them. Now, what they're going to ask you to do is bring your insurance with you, your car insurance, your home insurance your uh, boat insurance, your life insurance, your motorcycle insurance, whatever you got insured, they're going to ask you to bring that insurance with you and sit down with them and go through it and look at what kind of coverage you have, how good is it, and can you get better, and can you get better at a better cost. And they're going to try to do that for you with their all-state product that they have. You'll just have to drop by and, and talk to them. They'll set you up the appointment. You go over to 3920 East Keel Avenue in Sherwood for that meeting, and then you'll walk away, I believe, a happy camper. 
That's uh, Dwayne Smith's Insurance Agency in Sherwood, 501-819-0373, number to call. Was that not one of the coolest interviews that we've done in a while? I mean, I, I'm i always, I'm, I get excited when I got some of the big names that come on here and, and talk to us. But to sit down and to talk history with a, a gentleman who fought with the Tuskegee the Tuskegee Airmen is an amazing thing. And that he was, I was talking to Zach, Zach, pull the mic over. I was talking to Zach. And what, what did you say when he called in? He called, he called you and you well, told me what? Well, when I uh, picked up the phone and um, called him in, and, you know, basically when he started talking, you know, I couldn't believe that he was, you know, at that age, basically. 95. 95 sure, years 95 old. 95 on the 4th of July. You know, he still, his voice sounds great. <laughs> Not only that, his recollections. Yes. He, that dude is as clear as the ringing of a brand new bell. Totally right. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, because, look, I've interviewed some people that historically are are big big names and they were in their 80s mm-hmm. and some and they struggled sometimes right. with with facts and 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 explaining what it was like he didn't have a problem yeah I mean, sometimes I think about when you bring up that point, I think about Bill Russell sometimes have, you know, have troubles with that. Did you too. see him at the SB Awards? I did not. He, he was up on the in the balcony and uh, they called his name. Of course, they were, I guess, uh, spending a lot of time on his career gotcha. during it. And and I only saw a short period of it. Okay. And in fact, the only part I saw was the guy, and I forget who it was, that was was talking about him from the stage. I think it was Kobe Bryant. Was that Kobe Bryant? Yeah, I think it was Kobe. And talking about how great, you know, p- people don't realize how great Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain mm-hmm. and, and people like that were back in, in the early days of the NBA. Right. And, uh, you know, Dave DeBusher and all the rest mm-hmm. of them. But just amazing. He stood up, but you could tell. Yeah. You could tell uh, it was a struggle. Exactly. Yeah. And you so, could tell, and you know what? I wish I hadn't have seen him. I would have rather not seen him mm-hmm. like that. I'd rather remember. It's like I don't go to many funerals, to many viewings, because I don't want to remember the person lying in a coffin. Well, he used to talk, you know, during the NBA Finals, you know, because the NBA yeah. Finals Award is after him, and he used to talk during the presentation, and so he hasn't in recent time. But like I say, you know, going back to um, Harry Stewart Jr., yeah. You can tell there was a drop up at all. You know, it, there was none. Yeah, it's really, really amazing to to listen to uh, that lieutenant colonel talk. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to get him on again. I told you that we were talking yeah. after it, and I said I want to do it again, and then we'll put together an hour special on him and uh, and play it on. Uh, I don't know. We probably got uh, Labor Day coming up or whatever, and we can do an hour with him. And mm-hmm. uh, those are the people we got to keep. Uh, in people's minds about you know how it was you know he admitted that we're not perfect now yeah and i would admit we're not perfect now and i'll also say we'll never be perfect because we're human and you and i being you know followers of christ understand that we're you know man's a fallen creature he's never going to get there and right doesn't matter what group you hang out with whether you're with you know white folks black folks asian folks whatever i I hang out with all kinds of people. Everybody has 
They have their, their own story. Big, their own bigotry. I'm mm-hmm. just going to tell you. Yeah. Every part has that. And uh, and it's not pretty, but it is what it is. It is just man being man. It's, you know, and when I say man, for all you ladies out there, that, that for me is a, a non-gender pronoun, okay? It mm-hmm. just means it's, it, it encompasses uh, uh, everybody, pulls up everybody in. And so uh, he talked about when segregation and and when racism was at its worst in this country, I believe. I mean, a lot of us think of when men were slaves, that's when it was at its worst. I don't know if that was the case or when we said, uh, you know, African-Americans, black men were free and they weren't. It was a lie. Uh, They were treated as second-class citizens. Uh, these guys went and fought for our country. They faced, they faced all kinds of race. He didn't get into it, but I know from talking to other Tuskegee Airmen that they, they, they fought all kinds of racism when they were on foreign shores as well. They weren't allowed to eat with the white guys in the mess hall and things of that nature. Uh, and then talking about coming home and getting past the Mason Dixon line and told that you had to go to the colored car yeah you know and things of that nature i remember i remember not real clearly vaguely because i was born in 53 and a lot of that was starting to break uh when i was very young but uh, i can still remember black and white water fountains and restrooms and things of that nature yeah i believe my grandfather i think he fought in the uh, korean war and I believe no, I heard he stories. ran into it a lot. Then. Yeah, exactly. No, he came home. It was the exact same thing. There was no difference whatsoever just because he served. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was definitely rampant. Yeah, the time it was rampant. It was. It was, it was not a pretty time. And I, I'm one of the first that will admit to that. But what bothers me is the people who will not admit that our country has come a long, long way and act like it's still today like it was in the day and it is no and and that's what he was trying to impress it, not even close and he went and fought for his country because he loved his country yeah and it was taught it was taught to him as well to love his country like, yes hey, you know enjoy where you live basically yeah you know, yeah but. it's uh was an amazing interview like i said i want to get him back on mm-hmm. i'll uh i'll send him a a note and say we want to do it again maybe next week maybe we can get him next week and and talk for another half hour i'd like to expand our interview with him and talk a little bit about i'm sure he goes to uh grade school and high schools maybe even colleges and talks to him uh i'd like to hear you know when he's questioned yeah about today and what he has to say what you know what the what he thinks about the black lives matter Mm -hmm. group i mean I'll make sure that they know I want to talk to him about that stuff and not just about World War II. I want to get his take on on all of that uh, as well. All right, got to get our final break in. Let's do that, and then we'll come back. And it's already time to finish the first hour of the show today. It's gone quick. Uh, Robert Steinbach will join us starting in the next uh, hour. He might be just a little bit late, he's told me. But that's okay. Oh, I got a special guest for us on Thursday from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Now, Robert will join us on that day. But also, Michael Shipp is coming back, and I've, I'm going to tell him to forget his uh, forget his uh, guitar. 
not looking for him to, to play music, want him to come on and let's talk politics that day. It's a very astute uh, commentator about what's going on in Saline County as far as politics are concerned. So we'll talk to him about that on Thursday. He's always somebody I like to let you know. Bible guys tomorrow at five o'clock and the, uh, our, our uh, power panel uh, tomorrow from two until five. If you have a question for the Bible guys and they look forward to your questions, you can uh, email them to them at Bible guys at Salem LR.com. That's Bible guys at Salem L R.com. And by the way, that is an hour that has become very, very popular here on the show, and I thought it would. Uh, I've always been told in this business, Dave, you shouldn't talk about religion. And I've always said, but I can talk about politics. I think we can talk about religion as well. And it makes for an interesting hour here on the show. So that's coming up uh, this week as well. Lots of stuff to talk about when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And uh, the president and the press are going at each other. Big surprise. Um, You probably heard about his tweets over the weekend to uh, four of the freshman uh, congresswomen, basically Democrats, who have been attacking our way we're handling things on the border and, and whatnot. Uh, and he made the statement that the congresswomen should go back to where they came from. Uh, now, you got to understand, all but one are all from the United States. As he called on those same lawmakers to apologize, alleging that they hate America and chastise the Democrat Party for defending them. He was speaking to reporters outside the White House. Trump denied that his tweets were racist. Now, are you racist? You jump in with me here, Zach, and you tell me what you think. If I tell somebody, hey, you know, if you don't like it here, go somewhere that you will be happy with. Am I racist? No. I mean, I don't care what color they are, what ethnicity they are. It doesn't matter to me. If you don't love the country... Then go somewhere that you can that the you can love the country. You don't need to be here. Just uh, and I, I don't think I'm racist for saying that. He says if someone doesn't like our country, if someone doesn't want to be in our country, they should leave. He continued, "These are people that hate our country. They hate it. I think with a passion." Let me give you a good example. I don't look. Colin Kaepernick began taking a knee during the national anthem, saying he didn't like the um, disparity amongst the races, all right? He thought that uh, it's a race, the country was racist, and so he's taken a knee during the national anthem. Now, I wanna, want you to open up so people can see my studio a little bit more, uh, Zach, and I just hung this new flag up on the window here in the studio, a Betsy Ross flag, and... The Anti-Defamation League and all kinds of other groups have come out and said, that's not a racist symbol. Now, Colin Kaepernick says that it is, and uh, he wanted it removed or the the 13 stars removed from the back of Nike shoes, and Nike uh, caved 
and, and did it. Now, probably has something to do with their I'm paying him sixty or seventy million dollars or whatever as a spokesman, and uh, and did it. But I think Kaepernick, it's not about racism with him anymore. He just hates the United States. I really believe that. I I think he's a socialist and he hates our country. That bottom line. If you think I'm wrong, okay, that's fine. You think I'm wrong. Uh, if you think that, you know, he stands up for good things, I think you're nuts. But uh, that's what you think. But that's why, as you watch my show, if you wonder what that flag is that's up in the windows dividing my studio from the producer studio where they're running the show, uh, I put it up there because – you know, if the if if the Anti Defamation League says it's just a historical symbol of of America, that's good enough for me. I mean, if they're not calling it racist, then uh, I think we can all agree that it's probably not um, racist. Now, the president is continuing to criticize this group of uh, freshman Democrats, and uh, even though there's this firestorm going on. Uh, John Roberts uh, talked about that uh, on Fox, said this weekend the president went beyond his own low standards. Well, he didn't say this. Who was it that uh, said Nancy Pelosi? Of course, Nancy Pelosi said it. Um, announced, and she announced a resolution to formally condemn his remarks that she called xenophobic. And that means you hate people because they're from another, another country. That's not what he was saying. And they know that's not what he was saying. But that's what the left does. The left changes context all the time. The left changes words all the time. The left lives in the book 1984. They, they talk and news speak the way the left is. Uh, this weekend, the president, quote, the weekend, the uh, president went beyond his own low standards using disgraceful language about members of Congress. The House cannot allow the president's characterization of immigrants to our country to stand. Our Republican—what immigrant? What, what is his take on it? That if you come here illegally, you should be sent home. You know, I haven't seen him yet say if you came here illegally and you went through the process that you should not be allowed to be here. Uh, Omar already had fired back, tweeting Trump, you are stroking white nationalism because you are angry that people like us are serving in Congress only because you don't like the country, period. You want open borders. I don't want open borders. I don't don't think I've talked to anybody uh, in the last months, maybe even years, that want open borders. And fighting against your hate-filled agenda. Now, while some Republicans steer clear of the melee, Senator Susan Collins of Maine issued a brief statement saying the original Trump tweet should be removed. I disagree strongly with many of the views and comments of some of the far-left members of the House Democratic Caucus, especially when it comes to their views on socialism, their anti-Semitic rhetoric, and their negative comments about law enforcement. But the tweet, president's tweet, that some members of Congress should go back to the places from which they came was way over the line, and he should take that down. Don't know why. You're socialist, okay? You believe in socialism instead of capitalism and the way America was formed. 
uh, you're anti-Semitic, uh, you don't believe in, in Jews, uh, and you get negative comments about law enforcement all the time, you get negative comments about uh, the border all the time. I mean, bottom line, if you don't like it, go somewhere where you think it's better. Period. Period. I mean, I I get tired of it, too. I think most of you who listen to this show get tired of it as well. Nuts. And uh, Trump tweeted today, When will the radical left congresswomen apologize to our country, the people of Israel, and even to the office of the president for the foul language they have used and the terrible things that they have said? So many people are angry at them and their horrible and disgusting actions. If Democrats want to unite around the foul language and racist hatred spewed from the mouths and actions of these very unpopular and unrepresentative congresswomen, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I can tell you that they have made Israel feel abandoned by the United States. All right. We'll be back after the news. Got news coming up here at the top of the hour. Uh, Robert uh, Steinbach will join us uh, into the next hour. Uh, he wants to talk about an op-ed that was written by Paul Klugman, uh, Krugman, Krugman, pardon me, not Klugman, and uh, talked about that. And uh, Billionaires Shouldn't Live Forever is the name of his op-ed. All right, we'll come back. We'll talk more. Uh, go get yourself a cup of coffee or a soda or something or a cold one and pop the top and be back here in about six minutes on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. Second hour, Monday. You know you know what Monday means? Mon means my. So this is my day. Maybe it gives you a little bit different view on Monday. Yeah, because not a lot of people feel like that on Mondays. That's a, yeah, and maybe I, I'm just trying to help them out a little bit. Yeah, you are, you are. <laughs> <laughs> trying, trying, because Mondays are typically not really great. But did you see that study a couple of weeks ago that said that mo- Sunday evening is really Monday now? Huh. People start freaking out about work Sunday night. What going time? In, going into about 7 o'clock. Okay. Going into Monday. Yeah. So uh, we're so stressed out about our jobs sometimes. Right. So worried about our jobs mm-hmm. sometimes that, uh, you know, Sunday becomes Monday for us. That's, that's, that's pretty bad. That's truly sad, too. Because that, and that makes sense because, yeah, people stop thinking about the weekend, you know, probably around 4 o'clock. No telling. Yeah. You know. They've done everything that they really wanted to do for the weekend. If not, just relax. But they've done everything possible. So you're right. That actually does make sense. And that's truly sad. All right. So I'm just checking out about what's going uh, going on in the world. They're talking about low wages again. Here's what they're going to t- tell us. This is from uh, Market Watch. Uh, chain gangs are not a thing of the past. More than a million inmates are working for pennies. Uh, in New York, uh, this article here from Market Watch says, blaming manufacturing job losses on low-wage foreign competition 
or increasingly on automation, has become a staple of populist politics in developed countries. Nowhere is this truer than the United States, where President Trump campaigned on the issue in 2016 and has since launched a trade war with China. But U.S. workers have long faced another source of competition much closer to home. And what they're going to say here, I would have agreed with about a decade ago, but I I don't agree with it today, and it's prison labor. Many Americans may assume that the country's convict labor system is a thing of the past, especially given unflattering Western media coverage of other countries' reliance on prison labor to produce export goods. But in uh, 2005, the most recent year for which a fairly complete set of countrywide data is available, America's convict labor system employed nearly 1.4 million inmates, of which about 600,000 worked in manufacturing. That's uh, 4.2% of total U.S. manufacturing employment. America's prisons represent a large and growing pool of available labor. Since 32, that would be 1932, the number of inmates in the U.S. has soared from about 140,000 to more than 2.1 million. They work for companies like Walmart, Victoria's Secret, and Whole Foods Market, yet they earn less than a dollar an hour on average, far less than the legal minimum wage for non-incarcerated workers. As a result, uh, convict labor is not only exploitive, it also distorts market competition. Now, exploitive is a word that I wouldn't use. Maybe I'm wrong in this, and maybe you will disagree with me completely on this. But if you're in prison, if you broke the law, if you can't be trusted in society, and you're put in prison, and uh, you're, you have to do things at the prison— because, the la- I mean, I guess we could just let them all sit in their cells and do nothing. I mean, I don't look at sending people to prison uh, and putting them in classes and teaching them all kinds of uh, new things. I mean, you can't you can't teach them auto mechanic uh, stuff. You you can't take uh, teach them uh, you know woodworking and all the rest if. They can't make anything that they could sell or that the, the, the prison can use because that would be exploitive, wouldn't it? So I guess we shouldn't do anything. We should make it, yeah, you're going to be punished, all right. You're going to sit in your cell and accept to get out, maybe to walk around the prison yard an hour a day or to go get on the weights or whatever or go to the, the, the mess hall. Uh, you're going to sit. Just sit in your cell. Can you imagine what the prisons would be like then? Uh, it's a precisely the complaint they say. Convict labor is not only exploitive, it distorts market competition. It's uh, the complaint that has been leveled against China since its ascension to the World Trade Organization in 2001. Here is the difference. They write this and they're saying, well, make, they make them work. Um a, a, a large majority of the people who are in Chinese prisons, are they there because they broke the law because they killed somebody, robbed somebody, sold drugs, 
or are they there because they're political convicts? Uh, they, you know, they speak out against the regime that's in power, things of that nature. Large percentage are political prisoners who are sent to uh, labor camps. Now, I don't believe that we have labor camps like China and all the rest. So this is a this is a a, a mischaracterization. This is some, taking something totally out of context and applying one kind of labor to a totally different kind of labor. It says, yet over the course of its history, convict labor has affected U.S. manufacturing at least as much as the China shock. Uh, That effect was apparent from the 1870s. Okay, here we go. Since in the 1870s, going back all the way 200 years? I mean, think about that. I mean, we're in the... We're in the 2000, 2019. You're almost, we're almost talking about two, de- two centuries ago. 1870s. In 1886, prisoners constituted up to 2% of all manufacturing employees and accounted for 4.2% of total manufacturing output. Unlimited working hours and physical punishments together with new industrial machinery were a formula for super profits. Private forms of convict uh, convict labor were first abolished in 1941. Is it just look? I I they got rid of a lot of this. There's people out there that talk about, for instance, not only convict labor but disabled labor, disabled people, people who have problems getting jobs other places because of their disabilities, whether it be a physical or a mental. And they've had their jobs uh, stopped because they didn't charge as much to do their jobs, like putting, I don't know, pencils in, a, in something uh, perhaps to, to sell them. And they could do it cheaper uh, than uh, some other companies were doing it. And so the other companies went to with uh, to the uh, politicians and complained about it, and it was stopped because it was an unfair labor practice. They were making money, uh, and and you know the other people weren't. And then they they started. I remember where all license all the license plates that they made for cars were made in the state pens. You go straight pen. That's where they were. They were chucking them out, man. I remember it in Indiana. I remember it in Kentucky. I've been. I I'd gone to where they've done that before. That kind of work, and they were forced out of business because private business, because that's 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 a public business at that point. That's the government making the license plates and and literally saving themselves money by using you know prison labor. Of course, they were teaching the prison population uh, to how to work with machinery and things of that nature. That don't count. See, it doesn't matter if you're doing that. So when they get out, they might uh, be able to uh, get a job. But uh, because it was being done at the prison system, uh, you know, different companies sued state governments and won. 
Uh, they stopped making them behind bars and started making them uh, freely. Just says, while convict labor can be used to some extent in almost all industries, it was concentrated in only a few. In 1886, 10% of all furniture was produced in prisons. Though most employed convicts produced clothes and shoes. In the same year in South Carolina, prisoners produced more clothes than free laborers did. Uh, Overall, convict labor is responsible for 5% of the total manufacturing employment decline in the U.S. from 2000 to 2007. Companies should be required to pay prison prisoners wages that are closer to the market rate is where they say at the very least companies should have to bid for the right to use convict labor. Even if all the proceeds didn't go to the uh, convicts themselves, the difference could be used to help defray prison costs. I go along with that. But again, it goes back to, you know, private business, not wanting prison business to take away work from them. Uh, far from reducing distortions created by convict labor systems, some governments are uh, causing uh, worse problems with them. Uh, in Colorado, for example, state agencies must purchase certain goods such as office furniture from the state's correctional industries. A requirement puts firms without access to convict labor at a distinct disadvantage. And who would those be? People who aren't prisons. A lack of transparency in the process of determining which firms may use convict labor does not help. So it just goes on. Uh, Colorado recently voted to change the language in its state constitution so that it no longer allows slavery as a form of punishment. And yet prisoners in the state are producing furniture for the University of Colorado for $2.45 per day. What are they if not slaves? So this was put out by Project Syndicate, America's Captive Labor. And Michael Hoiker is a postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia University's Graduate Business School. Uh, you know, you look at that, and I, I agree some with some of what they're trying to say here. But, I, you know, this is not put, pushing uh, wages down. This if they're going to argue this, you know, hard against prison labor, where are the same articles from Market Watch dealing with illegal uh, immigrant labor? Because I've not seen it. I've seen nothing more than them ballyhooing how much it helps for the illegal alien labor that is out there. All right, we'll come back. We'll talk more about this. It's uh, what, about 20 minutes after 3. You've got to get a break. Robert Steinbeck is on his way. We've got a lot more to offer to you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, so, Zach, have you been following this story? It's a farcical uh, Twitter thing that started. Seeking people to come and raid Area 51. Have you been following this? I'm just seeing memes and images and stuff of that. Well, people are signing up for it. And over a million people have now signed up, okay, that they're going to bull rush Area 51. The U.S. Air Force now, at first, they thought it was a joke. Not anymore. Uh, This is a story from Reuters. 
And it says, if even a small fraction of those UFO lovers show up to try and break them aliens, in quotes, free from the secret desert facility, the Area 51 raid joke risks risks spilling into one of the largest civil disobedience events ever in the U.S. Here's what they said. Now, it's a joke. People are not understanding that it's a joke. Some people aren't. We can move faster than their bullets, the creators of the intentionally farcical event claim, but with over a million alien fans now registered as going and nearly the same number in reserve just interested in the raid, the U.S. Air Force could find itself facing off against an unprecedented number of unarmed individuals. Quote, we would discourage anyone from trying to come into the area, an Air Force spokeswoman previously said, expressing hope that UFO enthusiasts understand that an attempted breach of a military installation is no laughing matter, despite the very real threat that the authorities would have no choice but to use force in case of a real mass invasion, the special meme forces, either desperate to get to the bottom of U.S. government secrets or they're just bored, are keeping the uh, hashtag Area 51 memes hashtag alive. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you got to think about this. People say, well, what are they going to do if you got that many people? They Look, there's technology that the military has been working on using frequencies and things of that nature that if they turn it on to a crowd, makes everybody sick, and then they start throwing up and defecating uncontrollably. I'm just telling you. They have ways, it's non-lethal ways, of stopping large groups. Uh, I think we all are aware of the the one they used uh, not too long ago of, of, of using radio waves for heat. I mean, they use, look, they use microwaves for a micro, microwave oven, all right? I mean, I, I don't expect you to be, you know, microwave popcorn or anything like that. But they can make your skin, you know, not something that you want to touch when that's being used. So uh, I I don't understand what it is with people now that they think that everybody needs to know everything that's going on. There's some of that stuff that you don't need to know. Just, Just telling you, you don't really need to know about it. Let's see what else we got here that's out there. CBS News President wants trustworthy broadcast without point of view. What? What? Actual journalists? Really? That kind of excites me. Uh, On July 15th at 6.30 p.m., Noah O'Donnell becomes the next anchor of the brand defining CBS Evening News. It's still a heady perch, 
one that uh, was occupied with Walter Cronkite during those seminal moments in history, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Vietnam, the moon landing. But it's also one with many challenges in the always-on Trump tweet-fueled news cycle. CBS News President Susan Zerinsky entered the top job at the news division with an unshakable belief that O'Donnell, an aggressive and insightful broadcaster who has an instinct for newsmaking interviews, was the right person for the job. And so it is the second big anchor shakeup at the division with Gail King now the linchpin of CBS this morning alongside other co-anchors. We'll talk about this more when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. News first. All right, so Zerkinski, who is the person who is in charge of uh, the CBS Evening News, uh, makes a statement in the story that I'll be watching to see if they can live up to it. She's a 40-year veteran, so she's she's been there before political opinion started coloring news. And here's what she says now. Even though she says this, to be able to pull this off will be very, very difficult. Quote, I don't feel obligated to touch every story. Noah's focus and Kim's focus, talking about the, the uh, you know, the uh, anchor, co-anchors, uh, is going to be, what can we add in value to a story you may already know about? If a story has impact and it's been up since 7 or 8 a.m., how do we tell you something that you don't know? All right. That's the crucial thought. Our goal is, now here's where it gets interesting, strong journalism, impactful journalism, breaking news, investigations that would spur Congress to hold hearings. When they say that, that's a little bit, that's a little bit pushing it over the edge, okay? We see what we do as a calling. Now, what she says here is really, really important. In this day and age, there are very few people who are able to deliver a trustworthy broadcast without point of view. And that's who we want to be. Okay, so they're saying, or she's saying, that they want to be your real news source. She's talking about objective journalism, not advocacy journalism. Since the, the late 80s, early 90s, advocacy journalism has taken over news departments all across America, all across television, all across radio in many cases. And instead of giving you the facts, they give you facts tainted with their opinion. 
And there is a difference. If there is a riot, and I've covered riots before, all right? I covered riots at WIBC in Indianapolis when the new Black Panthers and the Indianapolis police got into it. And I was down on the on the tip of the spear, so to speak. Uh, and I was down there with a couple other reporters, and I know one of the female reporters ran into some problems because she went off on her own uh, and and got herself into some areas that she probably should not have gone in alone. Not saying as a female she couldn't handle herself, just saying better to have two people than one people, all right, one person. Uh, and, and, and she almost got herself hurt. Uh, but we went down and, and reported on it. We reported on what the police were doing. We reported on what the demonstrators were doing. We had the peop- side of the demonstrators talking about what they were trying to do. We had what the police were trying to do. We covered the clashes that occurred on uh, both sides. That's news. That's news. Now, that's just objective reporting. Now, let me give you something that would tell you about reporting uh, where you're trying to push a thought. It's where I go over and I cover the new Black Panthers. And I ask why they're doing what they're doing. And then I don't ask the other side why they're doing what they're doing. And I give the other side all the coverage. Well, that's advocacy. I'm advocating about what they're doing. I'm not reporting just on what they're doing. I'm advocating what they're trying to get done. Okay, now, you know, people call me up at times and say, well, you sure don't sound like a journalist. Well, I'm not a journalist when I'm sitting here doing a talk show. That's, I've never said that. I've always, I've said I use my journalistic instincts when I'm out looking into things. I can, you know, I can smell BS when there's BS going on. And I, but I offer, always offer my opinion. Talk radio is opinion driven. And if you don't know that by now, then surprise, uh, it is. It's not an objective type of way of doing things. So I just wanted to let you know. But to hear what uh, they're saying here on uh, that story is kind of exciting what she said when uh, she says, let me say that at what she said at the very end. I don't know if Noah O'Donnell is this way or not, the new uh, person's going to be sitting in the anchor chair. But when she says... In this day and age, there are very few people who are able to deliver a trustworthy broadcast without point of view. That's who we want to be. That will be a totally different news report. All right? Just so you'll know. Be totally different. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't even watch the CBS News or the ABC News or the NBC News. Let me tell you what, a lot of people still do at 6.30 to 7 o'clock or whatever time it is that, that you watch it. Take a guess there, Zach. How many, how many viewers do you think the big three have for their, um, their major news programs, that half-hour news program? Individually? 
No, 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 all together. <sighs> I don't know, maybe a million or something like that. I'm not sure. How about 23 million? Goodness. That's why it's important. I mean, everybody tell, says, well, you know, good, good thing that we got Fox. They're not even close to that half hour. 23 million. ABC uh, is a, a little over 8 million people during that 30 minutes. CBS is at the la- is in last place right now of the big three, and I think they got about 6.2 million. So add those two up, and you're looking at you know what uh, um, NBC has. It's a lot of people, and that's why a lot of people – uh, a lot when the political parties are running for offices and stuff, uh, they are watching what they're reporting. And that's why if you are uh, pushing, uh, you know, a narrative on on the news, it has an impact. Talk about 10% of the population. You can have an impact with 10%. So what, you know, what's Fox got? One, 2% maybe? And, and you know, the left goes nuts about that. They've got to be happy with what they're getting from the uh, the press on the, the left uh, when you're talking about ABC, NBC, CBS, and just, and just their half-hour nightly news. We're not talking the advocacy they have in their programming. There's a lot about that. Did you see the article over the weekend, Zach? Is Will Gay... On Stranger Things. Did you see that? Yeah, I've seen that. You know, I think um, he basically came out and said that, you know, it's up to interpretation. Yeah, I think that it, it, for instance, what he's talking about, because Mike says to him, we know you don't like girls, you know, that's not how it's meant. And it's not because, you know, you need the context of watching the show. And I think, you know, my opinion is that, you know, the guy for almost, what, two years or whatever, he was stuck. He in wants the... to be a kid still. Exactly. And kids think girls have cooties. <laughs> I'm just saying that's that's yeah. I don't know if they use that word anymore. But the bottom line yeah. is that's what they were pointing out, and that's what Will, the guy, the kid that plays Will, said. Even though they were looking for him, they weren't experiencing what he went through, and so he just wants to be a normal kid. So did you read the rest of that story and how the the gay community? Was it uh, Out Magazine or whatever it was that did the story? Said all of the characters on uh, Stranger Things are uh, like uh, like LGBTQ, STV, WXYZ people. Uh, did no, you see that? I did not see that. Yeah. Yeah. They went in. They started talking about, you know, uh, was it Billy and or talking about uh, uh, L and all of them. Yeah. You know, and. They all act like, you know, gay characters. I'm like, what the crap? No, you never got that from Billy, for sure. Elle, nope. It's nope. always been her and Mike. Yeah. Uh, Lucas, you know, he has eyes on Max from the time she got there, as well as Dustin, too. The only person on that show now that we can 100% say <laughs> is gay is what, Robin? Was that her name? <laughs> yes, yeah, Robin. Yeah, it's Robin. That's yeah. it. Period. And that just, that threw us, I'm like, what? But as I said, that wasn't enough. 
for the gay community. Nope, it's got to be Will because Will, you know, he's been the. Watch well, everybody. You know, well, yeah, everybody, but you know, Will, you know, hey, season one, they were looking for him. Season two, he was not himself because he had that spirit inside of him. And now he's connected to the monster. So this is how the left uh, goes out and changes language as we know it. We're talking about advocacy. Yeah. All right. And they're advocating that everybody is a little bit LGBTQ. That's what they're trying to say. And that's not true. Exactly. And I knew it when they first went, when Mike first said that to Will, I knew that that was going to become something, you know. Do you remember when they talked about how every guy has latent homosexual uh, homosexual, uh, impulses? I've heard that. Do you remember that? Yeah, I've heard that before. I mean, it just, uh, I'm just telling you that this is, This is 1984. It is 1984. Now, you finished the book, right? Not yet. I will be soon. Okay. So you're understanding now what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. And it's it's really happening. Mm -hmm. It's going on. This whole news speak stuff is happening. It's, It's when words, you're told that words that you've used for years don't mean what you've used them for for years. And the truth is always changing. It's all, yeah, truth is truth. Yeah. You can't just change it. And people, you know the thing that drives me crazy, and the last thing I'll say, I know we got we got to take a break, all right, but I'm going to say something that a lot of people don't believe anymore, and that's this. There is truth, and then there is no, there is no truth. All right, if you if something is not the truth, all right, then it's not true. It's that simple. It doesn't, doesn't matter if somebody else believes it's true. It's not true. Everybody can't have their own truth. You can't have it that way. That's opinion. That's not truth. There's either truth or there is no truth, period. All right, let me tell you about Applied Research Center of Arkansas. That's hard for a lot of people to understand because you've been taught about rationalization and all the rest, and you don't believe in, in, in truth. And there's a lot of people who don't believe there's any truth. Well, not the way I see it, not according to my truth. Okay, I'll move on. Applied Research Center of Arkansas, uh, they've got a full-service walk-in clinic. Uh, they do school physicals. Don't forget about that. Uh, to find out more about that, just go to arcarkansas.com, arcarkansas.com. Or if you want to be part of one of their current studies and uh, want to get enrolled in it and try to become part of it and be able to use the medicines that they're trying to get out on the market uh, for these uh, tests uh, to clear it, uh, you, all you have to do is call them, 501-954-7822. 501-954-7822. Applied Research Center of Arkansas is going to be on here in the near, near, uh, near future, and we'll talk about a lot of these studies. Like, for instance, the low testosterone study. I use this all the time because it's one that probably is easier to get into because it's for men 45 years of age to 80 years of age uh, if you have low testosterone you've had a blood test shows that you got low testosterone and you have a history or risk of heart disease or stroke 
you'll know if you have those as well, then you might be accepted for the low testosterone study. Again, call 501-954-7822. They've got like 12 or 13 other tests going on. If you go to arcarkansas.com, they've got them all listed on their website. You can just check it out yourself and just click on the ones that you're interested. That's arcarkansas.com, Applied Research Center of Arkansas. All right. You've heard about all of the uh, earthquakes that are going on. Okay, I typically don't talk about this stuff. This is from InfoWars, the uh, Alex Jones radio show. So what's Alex reporting on? Okay. The number of global earthquakes is three times above normal. Uh, 6.166, plus dozens more hit the ring of fire over the last 48 hours. Our entire planet is being greatly shaken. And uh, many believe that what we have witnessed, uh, excuse me, what we've witnessed so far is just the beginning. It says uh, they've had uh, 6.6 just hit Australia. 7.3 Indonesia, and of course, all of this comes just about a week after Southern California was hit by not one, but two large earthquakes that is experienced in more than two decades. So is all of this shaking unusual? It was just a few moments ago, I pulled up the most recent data from Earthquake Track, and what I discovered is more than just a little bit alarming. Looking at the entire globe, we have averaged 193 earthquakes of magnitude 1.5 or greater per day so far in 2019. That's very high, but it pales in comparison to what we have witnessed over the last week. Within the last seven days, our planet has experienced an average of more than 677 earthquakes of magnitude 1.5 or greater per day. So you just go on with this story and it talks about, you know, hey, look, we got all of this, all this going on. So what, what are we to make of all of this? And I'm scrolling down to the end of the story. Unfortunately, this is not just a localized phenomena. As I showed at the beginning of this article, the number of global earthquakes is three times above normal right now. Our entire planet is being greatly shaken, and many believe that what we have witnessed so far is just the beginning. Okay. So, no. That it's going to get worse. Because Alex Jones said so. Anyway. Living in California. I'm just going to go back and go over the, the headlines here. Crazy. Another one for you. Living in California is living on the edge. That's right. To live in California is to make a wary peace with an existential dichotomy. Breathtaking weather, astonishing natural natural beauty, uh, bounteous food and wine, stimulating multiculturalism, and the possibility of imminent, unpredictable disaster. Keep that in mind. That's everywhere, might I say. Earthquake, hey, haven't been through a tornado lately, have you? That can change your whole lifestyle. And then last, 
before we get out of here. This is a good one for you. This, I'm, I'm sure we haven't heard this yet, yet uh, from our friends on uh, you know, Infowars. Insects and bugs. This is, this is a story that refuses to go away. This has been a story since the 70s. Insects and bugs aren't exactly the most appetizing food items, but that doesn't stop a quarter of the Earth's population, an estimated 2 billion people, from eating insects on a daily basis. Now, it can be hard on the rest of us to wrap our heads around eating bugs, but that doesn't change the fact that many insects are excellent sources of protein, fiber, and vitamins. Okay, so here's my question, Zach. Do you think that the people who are living in these 2 billion people who live in other parts of the world are eating bugs because that's what they want to eat, or is it the only thing that they can afford to eat because their governments suck? Yeah, he's shaking his head yes. Yeah, that's how I feel about it too. I think they might want to eat a steak or a big bowl of green beans or something like that instead of fried ants. I'm just saying. Just saying. Understand other cultures are different. But taking a stick and sticking it into a big ant hole and pulling it out and and eating the ants, if they had a, oh, if they went to over to one of the ice cream places and got themselves a um, vanilla shake, I think they'd go with the vanilla shake. Just saying. Let's take a break. Robert Steinbeck's on his way here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. Four o'clock. He's here. Robert Steinbach is here. He has joined us. And it's good to have him with us. I wanted to start that off by saying he's here. He's not in his bunker anymore. You know, he he came out. They let me out. And he's ready to talk. Uh, Robert's here. He, of course, uh, is over at the Bowen School of Law, and he is, as I like to say, his opinions and his opinions and only his opinions, not necessarily those of UALR or of the uh, uh, School of Law, although they should be. So with that said, how you doing, bro? Was your weekend good? Very good. Okay. He He brings his own windscreen now. Yeah, because someone told me I'm not close enough to the mic, and I don't want a uh, a used windscreen, shall we say. We just had this discussion with our GM today. Is that right? What's yeah, that? Yeah, he was talking about back in the day when he was on air. Right. The guy, one of the guys that went on before him, uh, and I, he had, had a great name. I forget what it was now. Something bare that it was. But he said, this is when they still allowed you to smoke in the studio. Right, and right. And he, and he is really allergic to tobacco smoke uh randy is and he said he would come in this guy had been smoking on the air and he says the windscreen had like the brown of nicotine on it the windscreens remind me (laughs) of the remote controls at a hotel room i just don't have any faith that they're not a giant petri dish. Well, they dish, are a petri right? dish. You know, you just got to be careful about right, it. It's right. what you got to do. Uh, personally, I'd much rather have a windscreen that I can bring and spray it with uh, 
you know, something that Lysol kills everything. Something. Yeah, yeah. That's, you can do that too. And put sure. it on. Sure. Now, you might see, well, you will see me do it. In fact, I do it already. You'll see me bring my own windscreen in when it gets to be flu season. Yeah. Well, there you go. I stay away from windscreens yeah. at that point. Yeah. I also, and I don't have to deal with an engineer here, but I spray the keyboard so yeah, that I don't yeah. put my hands on keyboard where other people have been tapping and stuff. Well, it's an easy way to to catch a cold and that kind of thing. Oh, Lord. Of course. Yes, it is. It's, when I, when yeah. I was taking care of my mother before she passed and we would be going to the doctors and for chemo and stuff, I would literally walk in with a handful. I'd buy those Lysol wipes or another brand, whatever it yeah. may be. I'd wipe everything down. And there was, I remember. Did you wear a mask a lot around your mom? So um, that you didn't? Only if I was sick, I would wear a mask. Otherwise, okay. there was no no issue. Uh, but she wore a mask whenever when I took her out to certain places. Well, you I have put, to. Yeah, I put a mask on her. Even then, I recall one time, unfortunately, she wanted to go out to grab some lunch, and she was already not doing well. And I don't blame her to want to go to lunch. And some waitress walked by and literally sneezed as she's walking by. Oh. And I, uh, yeah, and I and I just saw it coming, and sure enough. The next week, my mother was sick, you know, but uh, what are you going to do? I just wish, I also do wish that some people would be a little bit more respectful. If you're sick, uh, first of all, if you're sick and in the food service, don't be working around food. Not a lot of, well, yeah. they can't afford, I, I don't know what can't to tell you. Can't afford to miss some work. Yeah, I don't whatever. know what to tell you. I don't, want, I, 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 I don't need you spreading disease. And moreover, as a general matter, if you have a cold and you're sick, uh, either don't go out or if you do, maintain good hygiene so you don't infect other people. That's just being respectful. I'll tell you what you won't see here. If I'm sick, you won't see me at work. I don't come to work. I'm not out. Zach doesn't have to worry about me showing up if I've got the flu because I'm going to be home. I'll be in bed until I get better. Yeah, that's good. That's just the way to – I think everybody should be that way. And if you're an employer and you don't have that kind of mindset – you're setting yourself up for mom, you know, uh, you know, losing money. That's right. They're going to spread disease around, and other people can get sick. Right. You have, you wind up losing. The, the law school is very good, by the way. They have they put the hand sanitizer out, uh, particularly during flu season. I of course tell my students if if you're sick, don't come approaching me. You can ask me a question from from sitting down. That's right. <laughs> right. And. Uh, um, they're, but like I said, they put out the hand sanitizer. I wipe everything down when you're using, I don't know, PowerPoint or any of these presentation devices because it's just an easy way to catch a cold. Anyway. All right. So I want to start off. Yes, I, sir. I like this billionaire shouldn't live forever, by the way. Oh, did it's, you see that article? Uh, we got to talk about that today. Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman has gone He's off. He's crazy. He, you know, Dave, I often say on your show that the left – has become a, a bunch of face melters, and that's an illusion, <laughs> right? Uh, it's an illusion to the uh, Indiana Jones yeah, when yeah, they open yeah. the ark and uh, the Nazis' faces melt. Uh, but the left now, it's as if the ark is opening every day. It's, a, it's a, as if every act of a conservative is uh, opening the equivalent of opening the ark. All right. So, so, so the big the big story, in fact, you're getting ready to cover on Fox. The Democrats from Congress, just from the House side, responding to President Trump's tweets. All right. Why don't you just go back where you came from and things of that nature? And guess what? I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking up. I, I'm 
Do, uh, do we have the, the, the shot open up enough that people can see my Betsy Ross flag hanging up in the background? I hung that there in retaliation against uh, Kaepernick. Kaepernick, yeah. And, you know, at first Kaepernick said that he took a knee during the national anthem because of racial disparity, basically. Now I think that he does what he does because he just hates America. Or he likes the press. Yeah, I think right. he hates America. I think Could he's be. a socialist, and I think that he hates America personally. Well, I, And what's wrong with the president's – they say the president's racist because he says that. I've told people to go live where they want to live if they don't like it here, and that's not a racist statement. It's a political statement. I think there are a number of layers, perhaps too many, to unpack, although I will make an attempt the, of course you will. Indeed. Um, <laughs> the, the statement, go back to where you came from, does have an ugly history. And it has been used in particular uh, regarding blacks, regarding African Americans. And you've heard uh, uh, racists say, go back to where, you, where you've come from. And the irony is dramatically palpable in that the vast majority of Africans... Didn't come here on their own. Right. They didn't come here by choice. Got Go it. back. If their ancestors were, were alive, they would say, I didn't choose to come here. I came here in chains. And the guy next to me died in the process. So uh, the history of that phrase happens to be fraught with a lot of negative meaning. That's the first point. And that needs to be recognized. And uh, if Trump didn't know that, well, he, he, he knows it now. Uh, secondly, there, he refers essentially to, to those four, what do they call themselves, the squad, the yeah. mod squad. Uh, uh, I don't know what they are. Uh, the, 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 uh, Which four- one's Link? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I would refer to them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but whatever it may be. Uh, that's a bit of a joke, folks. And none uh, of them looks like Peggy Lipton. No. Uh, although, <laughs> although, uh, um, uh, what's her name? Elon Omar uh, uh, has a very um, sort of attractive, uh, uh, while attractive is right, I'm thinking of another word. She kind of has a magnetic look about her. I can't stand anything she says. Uh, but uh, in any event, three of the four are Americans. We're getting ourselves in trouble. Oh, of course we are. No. Oh, are you not allowed to, Zach, am I allowed to refer to the fact that someone's attractive? No. Is that, is that, no? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, uh, uh, maybe I'll... Uh, you can't uh, do that uh, I'll poke you my eyes that? out like Oedipus. Uh, I don't know what's going on. The world's coming to an end. Those four horsemen have indeed uh, presaged the, the apocalypse. In any event, three of the four are indeed... Claw your eyes out. Right. Three of the four are Americans, but Elon Omar... Uh, is an American, three of the four are American-born, and the fourth is not. The Somali, correct? Right, she's Somali by birth, American citizen, let's be clear. So I tell you all that as a rather long-winded, as hard as it may be to believe at this point, uh, way (laughs) of introducing the following story. True story, no less, no doubt, regarding my father, who you know, Dave, uh, you didn't know him, but you know was an immigrant. I know his background. Yeah, you know his background. So when I was young, my dad once said to me, and it was really a, an interesting and solemn point, I think. He said, Rob, you're, you're born in America. You're as American as anybody else. You are American, uh, as American as someone whose family has been here for 20 generations. There's no difference. 
And I said, well, Dad, you're an American citizen. You're as American as I am. And he said, under the law, that may be true. But here's the difference, Rob. I came here by choice. Mm -hmm. You did not. Now, you wouldn't want to leave, I suspect. But I came here by choice. And when I came here, I said effectively and almost literally to the American people through their government, I would like to join your club. Yeah. Can I come in? Yep. And we said yes. And they said yes. And to be clear, he says, that doesn't mean that I can't say, listen, I disagree with this or I vote for person A over person B. But what it does mean morally, not legally, morally, is I should not be calling for the wholesale discarding of the American value system as it presents itself. Mm -hmm. I should not be rejecting what it is generally to be American if I'm asking to be American. So it's an honest response if somebody does that. Right. For somebody, look, if you don't like it here, go back to where you came from. And that's the distinction I'm drawing here. Three of the four, there is no go back to where you've come from. I agree. But the fourth one there is from a moral level. From three of the four, it would have been better if he would have said, hey, America, love it or leave it. Yeah, you could say that. Now, I don't actually agree with that claim entirely, right? Because we, you and I, Dave, complain about things going on in America. Yeah. But there's, I believe in the phrase, America, love it enough or leave it. Okay. Meaning if you really want to just discard everything that is America, yeah, you know what? Get up and go. Get up and go. But if you love a lot of it and dislike some of it, that you're entitled to say it. And that measure, wherever that line is drawn, is different for the immigrant who even became a citizen, like my father and mother, according to them, according to my father in particular, on a moral level. Not a legal level. They're all legally entitled to say what they want to say. But on a moral level, if you've come here and said, please, please, uh, can you extend the good grace of American warmth, American welcoming? Then you don't turn around and thumb your nose every time you can at America. And the fact is, the fact is that Elon Omar, I think, has crossed that line. All right. Got a break. We'll be back. We got more coming your way. He's here. And he'll uh, he'll state how he feels here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. It's uh, about, what are we looking at, 24 minutes after? Is that what we got? Yeah. Robert's here. And it's always good to have him here. Let me ask one other question of you, because this is something I talked about earlier in the in the show as well, and that is this. There is either truth or there is no truth. I heard you talking about that. That's right. Opinion is not truth. Not that's necessarily. Exactly right. Well, no, but that's exactly right. Opinion is, I prefer chocolate over vanilla. Mm-hmm. It's a preference. Fact is fact. Yes. Now, we may not know everything. We, have, uh, we can have mistakes in perception, mistakes in recounting, but events occur. And as you aptly talked with Zach on the air earlier, it's not 1984 in reality, meaning you can't talk your way out of reality. But that's what the left Don't tries to do. Don't tell the left do. that. Right. Well, let's exa- listen, the left believes in the notion of a living constitution. No it's, such thing. Right. And you know what they say? They say you take this document and then you imbue it 
with modern values. By the way, who's doing the imbuing? Is there some sort of vote, like when we vote for president? No! It's an unelected judge. And there's different judges on different courts. And they all have different opinions. Exactly. And the fact is, those words have meaning. Words inevitably have some level of indeterminacy. Granted. Supposedly. Well, granted. But the fact, like Dave's wearing a blue shirt. Now, the audience doesn't know, is that a navy blue shirt? Is it a royal blue shirt? But they know the parameters. The Facebook people know. That's exactly right. (laughs) But those are the parameters. And they so, can also see the egg on my shirt. There you go. Sorry. Is that not egg on your face? No. In any event, the, the, the fact is that the left claims a level of indeterminacy in language that is absurd. So their claimed level of indeterminacy in language is so broad that we would be crashing our cars into each other every day because nobody would know the difference between right and left, stop and go, etc. The fact is that... Most words have basic, understandable, and universal meaning to us. And the left doesn't like that because they can't alter. They can't change the Constitution from its relatively conservative impression of what this country is. And so they come up with this 1984-like doctrine to undermine our legal system. Well, here's the point that I was trying to make, though, Robert, and simply this. There is truth out there. The biggest disservice we do to our young people in schools today is teach them that each person has a different methodology of the truth. It's remarkable. There is either truth or there is no truth. It's remarkable how often I see, particularly in the social sciences, where the teacher's teaching a class and he asks students, well, what do you think? And they give some sort of statement. And whether or not it's true, he goes on to the next person. Mm -hmm. There is no, that's not how it works. I will ask my class questions. And when someone says something that's wrong, my response is no. No, simple. No. Right. They and they need to learn. Sometimes they get the wrong answer. And and what suck a, what, it up. What a concept. And they also need to be able, by the way, to say something that turns out to be wrong, accept that fact in public and move on. And move on. And not be a delicate daisy needing a therapy dog and uh, a stuffed animal in the classroom. Oh, by the way, take a look over your shoulder. The, oh, the squad's on the, television. The squad is here getting we go. Their, their moment in the sun here. AOC is at the mic, I can only imagine. Can, Trump, we, can you bring up Fox real quick here? Let's just see you what put it on? Yeah. yeah, let's see what AOC is saying here. When I was a little girl, my father took me to the reflecting pool here. We were on a road trip from New York to Florida to visit family. And I've told this story before, but it was my first time ever visiting Washington, D.C. And it was my only time visiting Washington, D.C. for years, if not decades. And he rested me on the side of the reflecting pool and had my toes dip in the water. And he had me look at the Washington Monument, had me look at the Capitol, 
had me look at the entirety of the capital of our, of our great country. And he looked at everything and he pointed to all of it. And he said, this belongs to all of us. This belongs to you and it belongs to me. And so the first note that I want to tell children across this country is that no matter what the president says, this country belongs to you. All right, we'll take a break. Now. We got we got to take a break because I got to get to the news. When we come back, let's deconstruct a little bit of AOC here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. Oh, sorry, I looked at the clock and it looked like it was at at top at top of here. It is now. So here's your news. So I'm just mentioning to Rob, I was talking that this Saturday is the 50th anniversary of us landing on the moon and, 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 and uh, Frank Borman getting off of the spacecraft and, and walking around. And I remember that sitting in front of the TV, we rushed home from the uh, uh, drive-ins where we were watching all of the uh, Planet of the Ape movies that were showing back to back to back to back. And uh, myself and and Sharon and uh, Doyle Banks, my best bud, and uh, uh, his girlfriend and my mom and dad sat there and watched that. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. It it seems like to me that they finally came out of the capsule. We kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And they came out, and it was just such an awe-inspiring event. But then I was moving on, and I looked at, at Robert, and I said, you know, as much as things change, things stay the same. We're arguing right now, these three, these four women sitting up here in front of the microphone on Fox News and, and showing how irritated they are at the President of the United States because he basically told them, hey, look, if you don't like this country, go go away. You know, we'll see you later. Back in the time that we're talking about, uh, the Vietnam War was raging in Southeast Asia. And some of you are old enough to remember the hard hats. Hard hats were construction workers, steel men, and all kinds. Most were World War II vets. They had, they had fought for this country, and for them it was America, love it or leave it. And... It just has, it's never changed, Robert. It, it's, it's just, I don't think it ever is going to change. There are, there, there are those who believe you should love your country and work towards bettering your nation, not put your nation down all the time and say that there's nothing good about it. And that's what I hear now from the left consistently. I don't hear positives. I hear nothing but negatives. I agree with that. To a point, meaning, love as we discussed before the break, I believe love it or leave it is valid only if what you mean by that is love it enough, but you can still have some criticism. But if all you do, as you suggest, is tear it down, that ain't loving it. And then, and that's what the SDS and that's what the Weathermen and all the rest were doing. And they were revolutionaries. And that's not a compliment. Let me be clear. They were seeking to overthrow our way of life. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Well, I I do think we're seeing some of that. You can't tell me that Sanders is not a revolutionary. The man honeymooned 
honeymooned in the Soviet Union. All he pushes is socialism. He pushes it 100%. Well, communism, really. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Before, uh, uh, you, you know, I... Eugene Debs would have loved him. <laughs> yeah. I, I um, <laughs> worked in various aspects, as you know, Dave, for the federal government. Yes. And so as such, I've taken an oath to support this Constitution. You have. You were in the military. Yeah. I cannot overthrow this government. I've sworn to do otherwise. Moreover, I morally would never want to do that. Okay, now let's let's yep. let's be clear. When yep. we say this government, it's the Constitution. Oh yes, yes. I don't mean President Trump or President yeah. Obama. No, let's, no, let's, no. Let's, let's I mean the Constitution. We, I I took uh, an oath to, to uphold that. Con- I will. Uh, there are two ways to change our Constitution. One legal, one not legal. Mm-hmm. The legal way is you make an amendment. Right. You don't like part of it, you make an amendment. We've done it over over a couple of dozen times. Yes. The illegal way is revolution. Take over the government. Get it, Have a coup. You know, yeah. Sort of like the Democrats tried to do when Trump was elected. Yes. Uh, uh, but that was kind of a <laughs> bloodless coup. They didn't yeah. want to shoot people, but that was a coup attempt. Mm-hmm. As Seven far as, days in May. Yeah. Anyway. Indeed. Indeed. So that's illegal. I've sworn not to support that kind of behavior or engage in that kind of behavior. And as I described before the break as well, my father believed morally, not legally, that if you chose to come to this country rather than being born here, you owe an even greater commitment. You are at least that commitment because you take that same oath, by the way. You take that oath when you choose to become a citizen of this wonderful country. And so this is what's lost, I think, in this debate overall. If you are begging to come into the walls of this country... Don't, as was done recently, then try to hang up the Mexican flag or the Nicaraguan flag or some other flag. Can I, I mean, tell you about, I almost got in an art, well, into a you know, hand-to-hand combat, basically, in Laredo, Texas. No, what happened? I, well, you know, Laredo was right there on the border. Yeah, sure. All right, my, my son-in-law was working down there because he works in the oil fields. All right. So I'm down there, and when you're down in that area, man, I'm all about pottery. I love oh, pottery. They, they got some wonderful, yeah, really they got great artful stuff. And Terrific. I was walking through and looking at it, and and the and the prices are typically right. I'm just saying. And I walked into this one, and I'm standing there, and I look up at his flagpole, and he's flying the Mexican flag. And I walked up, and I go, "Dude, I said that's not right. Take that and put the American flag up." He says, "Gringo, if you don't like it, leave." Yeah. Now. We exchanged some more some words, words. And, my, and my son-in-law pulled me away. Right. <laughs> well, I have no problem with someone having pride in their national origin. And so, and I, I see this all the time, and we see it all the time. We see the American flag hung the highest, by the way. And then, secondarily, you can have other flags. Yeah, no problem. No problem. He had the American flag under Mexican oh, that's even. Oh yeah. my gosh, Dave has, for example, in the studio for those on Facebook, you can probably see it. He's got the Israeli flag in yes, addition to the American flag, but Dave has no flag higher than the American that's flag. That's correct, because it's again, it's what we're talking about. It's respect. Is it required by law? No, it's respect. 
This country is the greatest country in the world. Oh, how can you say that? You hear all these leftists. Did you see the New York Times literally put out a tweet a week ago and said, this is not the greatest country of all time. In fact, it's eh, okay. What? What? This is not jingoism. This is actually fact. This really is the greatest country in the world, and it is the greatest of all time. Because the world as a whole is at, at its greatest development. Mm-hmm. We have the most resources now that humankind has ever had. And as I've said on your show before, Dave, you know how this is the greatest country in the world? Because compare it to every other country and ask yourself, do more Americans want to move to that country or more of whatever, that, be it French, be it Somalis, Want to move to our Indians country. want to move to our country. Yeah. And for the most part, our country is bigger than those others. Not, not all, not India, not China, for example. But for the most part, our country is bigger, yet more of those people want to move here. You know why? Because they're smart, by the way. I mean that sincerely. I'm not being facetious. That's the right desire. I've got no problem with that. The problem I have is when the leftists, like the squad, gets up and say, open the doors, come on in. Open borders. Open borders. Can't do that. Their claims to the contrary notwithstanding, they are positing a position of open borders. Open borders cannot exist for any period of time. It is like a ship that says to everybody who wants to get off a desert island, desert island come on on come on on board there's a limit and when you exceed the limit dave you know what happens the ship sinks there it is and that's why we need to have reasonable immigration policies and i certainly agree with what most countries in this world do we get to choose not those on the other side of that's the right and we'll choose the best the most talented the brightest whatever we want Whatever we decide as a people. Because it's our country. Because it's our country. Well, it's not your country when they go. It's our country and it's not theirs until they come here and then they become a citizen. And we allow them. That's right. We and we allow, allow them, them. And we permit them. Not they sneak in or overstay their visa or make a claim for, for asylum, then get denied and refuse after an order to depart is ignored. Not those folks. They don't get to tell us what we want. Yeah, it's just like somebody who has fallen on hard times. Just to say they fell That's on right. hard times. That's right. And they decide. I know where you go. They're going to move into my house. That's right. Or, but, or I thought you were going somewhere related, which is. That ain't going to happen, by the right. way, unless I allow them to. Well, let's say you give them some charity and they come to the position of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Give me money. I mean, you're not entitled to it. Fellow, you get it out of my good grace. That's exactly right. We're trying to do what Jesus would do. That's right. That's exactly right. As we have been told to do. That's right. By the way, by the way, and and as you know, I'm Jewish. That that claim is as true for me, meaning there's no debate in history that Jesus pursued acts of charity. He wasn't a socialist. No, he was not. Yeah. No, he was I not. I know he wasn't. No, he was not. We can talk about that. Yeah. Want to yeah. talk a little religion? Sure. Well, we'll do that when sure. we come back. <laughs> we'll talk about anything on this show. We'll be back with you in a moment here on the Dave Ellswick Show.
Okay, so I'm going to talk for just a moment with Robert about Jesus. All right. He's a historical figure. That's right. All right. We know that he was a historical figure. And guess what else we know? And this is to my Christian brothers and sisters. He was Jewish. He didn't he didn't come here to start a new religion. He came here to complete a religion, all right? So bottom line is, and a lot of people forget about this, and they it used to be called Judeo-Christian thought. Now, you know, we got the people who have tried to replace the Jewishness with the church, and that's wrong. Just that, that's why Tuesday show is so interesting uh, at 5 o'clock with the Bible guys, because they come from a Hebra- very interesting guys. Hebraic, yeah. Hebraic belief system. That's right. That to understand the Bible, you have to understand Jewish thought, not Greek thought, not Roman thought, but Jewish thought. Well, the first, the Old Testament is the first part of Christianity, obviously. Yeah, you a- wouldn't call it the New Testament if there was nothing before it. And we, we divide it up into 24 books. Um, Protestantism has it, I want to say, in the 30s, and the Catholics have it in the 40s, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's the same text. It's just how you're yeah. dividing them, right? That's, that's something, sort of a structure imposed upon it after the fact. But it's the foundation of Christianity and the, the entirety of Judaism. So the notion that there's not a significant overlap is absurd, now, I don't suspect that most people say that, but it, it, it's useful to be cognizant of that. Well, it's, let's just go back and take up the question or the, the, the statement that I made. Because you'll hear people say this, and communists are notorious for saying this, that Christ was a socialist. No, oh, it's such nonsense. It's, just, it's historically untrue. Totally against Jewish law. Yeah, it's historically untrue. You know, Jewish law was you do this because that's what your heart says. Jewish law, if you look back at the Old Testament, there's a series. uh, It's in, I think, in Leviticus, a series of laws that we, you and I understand today as civil law. Yeah. Right. What do we do if we uh, uh, if we borrow people's property? That kind of thing. That's. There are specific rules set forth in law, in religious law, in Jewish law, which, of course, is the basis, the the genesis, I dare say, of Christianity, that sets forth obligations. Those obligations demonstrate a fundamental belief in and understanding the value of private property, meaning I get to own land, I get to own things. And that is antithetical to notions of socialism and communism, plain and simple. And and it's the basis of where thought for our Constitution came oh, from. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. Because if you go to all of the Ivy League schools, do a little history here. I went to two of them. You go to Princeton, go to Harvard, go to any of them, look at their, their symbols, their national symbols. They're in Hebrew. Well, not all of them, but many of them. Yale uh, uh, is in Hebrew, for example. Harvard is, too. They've got, they've got Hebrew on their seal. The main seal is in Latin, veritas something, uh, but they may also have Hebrew writing as well. Of course, right, and, and 
similar notions, whether regardless of the language, are reflected in various seals. For example, Penn, one of the schools I went to, uh, the, the motto is something like, laws without morality are in vain. Tell me that's not a, more, that's not a religious notion. <laughs> right? All of it was. Of John Adams was. said a, 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 a people who were not moral were bound to fail, basically. That's right. That's right. So I have no problem. And it, ask them where they found the morality, and it was in the Bible. You know, that's the, the, the crux of it. This is an important point. It's a philosophical point. How much morality can you have without some sort of claim to divinity? And those who are uh, don't believe in God claim you can yeah, atheists. sometimes. Atheists, thank you. I was well, struggling they, with they'll, that. They'll right. start quoting uh, social Darwinism, which I uh, doubt. Seriously, they'll, they'll, doubt. Right. But... It, I believe it's a challenge. There's a big debate on this, no doubt, but I believe it's a challenge to really establish a compelling moral scheme without religion. But, of course, atheists will dispute that. And, and I welcome the debate, by yeah. the way. And and I've got friends who are atheists, and they're good friends. And so, so here's the question, yeah. Robert. Yeah. And we, we've scratched it every once in a while. That's right. Where's truth? Right. Now, truth, when it comes to divinity, one has to concede, relies on the notion of faith, yeah. which is not I proof. just wish scientists would understand a lot of theirs is faith as well. A lot of the core principles. Um, but it, it doesn't rely on proof. And so there is an element uh, that is different than what we talk about when we talk about basic truths in day-to-day life. So... I think someone who claims to be someone who is an atheist and claims that I can't prove religion, my response is generally, "That's okay. I'm not trying to prove it." Okay, so prove to me there isn't a god. Exactly right. <laughs> right, and and their response to, is, uh, "I don't believe in anything that isn't uh, proven to mm-hmm. me." And my response is, "You think you know everything about?" The, the real world, no less the divine world, right? You think we didn't understand half of what we now understand in physics 100 years ago. It still existed. 10 years ago. Ten years, fair enough, right? These, these small subatomic particles Quirks. we were wholly unaware of, they still existed. Guess what? Before Newton conceptualized gravity, we weren't floating around. <laughs> it still existed. Yeah. So... What's yeah. truth? Light speed existed yeah. before Einstein. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly just right. Wasn't, didn't have a name yet. That's, that's right. All. That's exactly that, that's right. That's all. But I, I just, people do not realize how much Judaism re- is reflected in our nation. 100%. You, can, you, you, you can't take Judaism out of both the core concepts of the American experience, nor can you take it out of Christianity. You cannot. I know. Well, I know you know that. Here, here's the key, all right? Christianity without Jesus is nothing. Uh, uh, Judaism right. with, without Christ is still Judaism. That's right. And, and now, mind you, I, I, and I've told this story on the air before. I had a great friend in high school that I just lost touch with. But we, I point that out to say we never had a falling out. But, you know, it's too many years ago to remember. And I would go to his house, and they were— evangelical and 
he would proselytize to me. And his father actually came in while he was doing so and tried to curtail him because he thought that his son, my friend, was being sort of, I don't know about offensive, but Too overbearing. Pushy. Yeah, overbearing. And I said, oh, no, no, no problem. We're having a conversation. That's all. Yeah. And, and the father was, oh, okay. I just, no yeah. problem. No problem. Because, look, I recognize that people have different belief systems. And I respect their belief system as long as they respect mine. And he was respectful of mine. He really was. Mm-hmm. And th- that's what I ask for and, and overwhelmingly get from everybody that I come into contact with. And that's, and so, you know, the left so demonizes the religious. Oh, I, I, I don't know if I sent it to you. There, oh, I think I did. There was an article in New York Times. It's a good segue. Uh, there was an article in New York Times about a gay guy running for office in the Bronx, New York. Right. And his opponent, he, he's a black gay guy. Uh, and he's running against a black, not straight guy, who's 76, year, 76 years old and a reverend. A religious guy, needless to say. And the title says, uh, gay guy running against uh, someone who expresses homophobic comments. Well, what? Yeah. That's rather interesting. What's that all yeah, what's, up, what's, up, what's up with that? So I pull it up. Here, let me tell you what the homophobic comments are. Got one minute. Yeah. He was against gay marriage. Just like President Obama was, mm-hmm. just like Hillary Clinton was. Until it was politically and, Right, expedient. until they switched, right? And then, by the way, once they switched, if you didn't switch, you're a homophobe. And <laughs> so against gay marriage, True. and he said that, that uh, gay um, behavior is uh, sinful. And let's remember what that word means. It means contrary to the dictates of the Bible. Missing the mark. Contrary to the dictates of the Bible. Well, the Bible prohibits that behavior. You might say the Bible is another book like Moby Dick, but it's contrary to the Bible's proclamation. All right. We'll pick it up on the other side of news. Wow, it's already final hour. Zach, we're into the final hour of the show today. It's incredible. It has gone fast. It's been a fast Monday. Got to love that. I was just sitting here listening to Brett Hume on, on Fox. and it just and Now, Brett's been around long enough that he knows that this thing that's going on with these four freshman Congress people is no different than what went on during the Vietnam War at the hard hats and, and all of that, you know, America love it or leave it or whatever. That, that basically, it's the same argument all over again. What was it Solomon said? There's nothing new under the sun? There isn't. There is not. There is not. It, it, it is the events of the world repeat themselves. Over and over and over again. All right, so enough of that. Let's move on to a different topic. We had started a new topic right at the end of last hour. Let's let uh, Rob pick up on it. We were talking about how the New York Times has a headline that a young black gay guy is running for office in the Bronx, New York, against an old, older, black, straight guy, and that the latter made homophobic comments. So I thought headline was intriguing Must enough. Must really bad. Yeah, so I pull it up, and as I said before the break, the so-called homophobic comments is that the, the older guy, is, who's a preacher, a religious preacher, said he's against gay marriage, 
by the way, roughly half the country, maybe a little bit less, is against gay marriage. Mm -hmm. Out of religious beliefs, by the way. Because it's not permitted in the Bible. And he said that uh, gay behavior is a sin. And let's be clear, by sin, that word means prohibited by the Bible, which it is also. Yeah, it is. So is, for example, it, it is prohibited for a Jew to eat lobster. That is a sin for a Jew to eat lobster. Now, you might say, well, I know plenty of Jews that eat lobster. Sure. It's not that the Bible reaches his hands out and tells people what to do if they don't want to comply. You don't become a robot. Right. You don't become a robot. And there are people, as we discussed before the break, who are atheists. They say, well, that Bible is like Moby Dick. It's just another book. Okay. But the point is, hopefully, still in this country, we recognize that people can observe the dictates of the Bible, and by doing so, we don't call them homophobes, we don't call them racist. I'm not talking about false dictates of the Bible. We know that the Bible was incorrectly used to claim that African Americans, and blacks indeed, mm-hmm. because they didn't need to be African American, but the blacks mark of Cain. Were, were, yeah, were inferior. No, no, the, the, as we said earlier, there is truth. Words mean something. The Bible doesn't say that. But the Bible actually quite clearly prohibits homosexual behavior. Yes. Again, you say, well, I don't like that. Okay. I don't want to observe that. Okay. But does it say that? Absolutely. Yep. And that doesn't make you a homophobe if Old you observe Old and it. New Testament. Yeah, that's right. It says it at least twice, by the way, in the Old Testament, because I think it's Leviticus, and then most of those rules are repeated in Deuteronomy. Yep. So, have we come to a point, at least, uh, we have come to a point, according to the New York Times, that if you say, I subscribe to the Bible, not a false interpretation of the Bible, yeah. not not some... Not uh, Westboro Baptist. Yeah, not some crackpot idea of what the Bible says. A basic, pick up any Bible... Any translation, or if you can read it into the original Hebrew, bring that one out as well. Or Greek. For the New Testament. The Old Testament was in in Hebrew, Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Greek. That's right. That's right. The first time it was written in Hebrew, by the way. The Old Testament? Uh, The New New Testament? Testament? Yeah. Really? The apostles were all Jews. Yeah, but I I didn't realize it. I'm no expert on that. I take your word. In any event, So read it in any version, and it's clear. So according to New York Times, if you believe in the Bible, if you subscribe to the notions of the Bible, and by the way, this guy's a preacher, no less, Mm -hmm. and you simply repeat those words, you're a homophobe. Uh, The next step for the left, it is clear, Dave, is that it shall become illegal to repeat words of the Bible. Okay, so it. now, you hear Robert say that, and you go, yeah, never happened. Yeah, never, never happened. happened. Take you across the border into yeah. Canada. It is illegal for preachers to preach that. If you preach that from the pulpit, you can be arrested. You'll be fine for sure. Do you remember the story? It was in Canada where some junior teacher got in trouble because she wasn't calling the student by the right pronoun, pronoun. Mm-hmm. under the transgender pronoun That's dictates. And this was someone, by the way, who was a liberal. 
I think she. it may have been a mistake. It wasn't even some sort of uh, protest. But she called the student by the wrong pronoun, and they were ready to string her up. Yep. This is this that, is that is nineteen eighty four for sure. That's right. These are the dictates of of the left. You shall be ostracized. Oh, and you know what the what the term that they'll oh well you're toxic. You're not using the right pronoun. You're <laughs> toxic. toxic. That's what the left uses now. Wow. Yeah, because wow. you see, if they call you toxic, Dave, it's not your ideas that are bad because ideas are protected by the First Amendment. Mm. It's not words that are bad because words are protected by the First Amendment. You're toxic. Well, toxic is poison. We can prohibit that. We prohibit arsenic. We can prohibit toxic people. Same way they say, well, you see, hate speech is not speech. By the way, don't use the word speech then. Hate speech is not speech. So we can prohibit that too. And I'm going to go back to the bill that's going to come up in two years again. Here we go. Here we go. Trent Garner, are you listening? Is this thing on? Trent, (laughs) because the bill's coming back in two years. And the bill is, if you work for for the state government and you're at home in your footsie pajamas, you can write anything you want on your Facebook without some mid-level bureau hack. By the way, generally leftist, Trent, who want, who want to fire you over that. Yep. You know who showed up to protest that? The university. That's right. The university, who's supposed to be for expanding your mind, expanding thought. They want to shut down your speech when you're at home in your footsie pajamas and... Our favorite, the Municipal League, who are paid with taxpayer dollars to represent senior bureaucrats when they want to muscle the hardworking day line workers in government. That is who protested free speech. All right. One, one, one other thing before we go to our first break, and that's this. Canada does not have a First Amendment. That's right. Keep that in mind. It's important. It's an important fact. Dave Ellswick Show, back with more in a moment. All right, so Robert sent me another story, and he knew it was from my, my favorite columnist uh, and uh, economist, Paul Krugman. And uh, this called Bill- Billionaires Shouldn't Live Forever. I'll just let you talk about it's, it. It's really remarkable. First of all, Krugman is an economist, and this is the problem. These leftist economists are not economists. They don't understand basic economic notions. They just reject them. Why? Because they don't like them. So Krugman, as I said maybe an hour and a half ago, Krugman is like one of these face melters from Indiana Jones when they opened up the ark. So he says, oh, my gosh, there are a bunch of rich folks who apparently want to spend money so that they can live longer. Mundu, I can't believe it. And we shouldn't let them, because poor people can't do that. Wait, what? First of all, shut up. (laughs) That's my response to Paul Krugman. Shut your stupid pie hole, you clown. But you have the right to have that belief if you so choose. Oh, my gosh. So, here how to break this down because you know when you pile shinola on top of shinola unpacking it becomes more difficult the first problem is rich people shouldn't be allowed to do something if poor people can't do it equally because rich people will gain some sort of advantage not in every instance but in this instance 
it fundamentally misunderstands how economics and how human behavior operate. How so? Because if rich people invest money in life-extending scientific discoveries, guess what will happen next? Then they'll offer it to less rich people, the people who have these discoveries, and then even less people. Think about flat-screen televisions. You remember when they came out, Dave? Those things were a fortune. Who had them first? Five thousand, six thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Rich folks. Then they came down a little. So who bought them then? Slightly less rich. Uh, personal computers. That's right. Personal computers were twelve grand or something, yeah. right? Outrageous. And then, as in any scientific development, it becomes democratized. It That's becomes because people figure out. How to make it cheaper. That's right. And why do they figure it out? Because of capitalism. Because if you're the guy selling the technology and you can sell it to one rich guy for $10 million and then the next day you can sell it to two less rich guys to, for $5 million and then the next year to a 1,000 less rich guys for $1,000 or $10,000. I'm trying to keep the math similar. And then the next year... We get them like they're flat screen television. So that's right. You might be four years out of the life extending technology. That's right. By the way, let me let Mr. Krugman in on a little secret when it comes to. If it to, becomes available, he'll be using it. Not only that, it already is the case when it comes to scientific advancement. What do you think? You think that everybody has access to the, we don't have it ubiquitous yet, but something like the artificial heart? First, these things are experimental. Yep. And they take huge research grants. So uh, sometimes from donations by rich folks, sometimes by taxing the American public. Now, wouldn't it be nice that you didn't have to pay for all these things through taxation because some rich guy's inventing this thing? But if you, you read Krugman's yeah. article, that's exactly what he says. Oh, that's what rich. he says. He says, we shouldn't have it unless we can tax everybody and give it to everybody all at once. By the way, it doesn't go to everybody all at once. That's not how things work. Yeah. It has to start out with one person trying. Well, it's better than it be a random person than a, the hatred, the hatred of the left for rich people. I don't idolize uh, rich people more than anybody else like crony capitalists do. I'm not saying that. But if you're a rich guy and you can and you can afford to do something, and I will inure the benefits therefrom thereafter, I'll take it. All right, let me read this quote, please. All right, this is here's what's important to hear. Listen to what Paul Krugman says. The fact is that we can't have a decent society unless all citizens have some basic things in common, and unless, and you were saying it ends up that everything everybody gets to the point where they have they some these in common. And it's not trickle-down economics, you lefty crackpots. It's basic economics. And unless we develop a much cheaper life extension technology, morality will have to be one of those things. Sorry, billionaires, but we can't restore the kind of country we were meant to be. His thoughts, not mine. We can't bring the republic back to life unless we reestablish the principle that in the end, all men... Must die. By the way, Dave, it, uh, on that point, well, uh, everybody's got to have it or nobody gets it. That's right. You know that the car, when we invented the automobile, and we, I wasn't part of it, right? But when those who invented the automobile and made them available to the public, you know who bought them? 
rich people. Yeah. Cars were a rich person extravagance. The old phonograph, the wind-up phonograph, rich person extravagance. Do you have a car? Of course you do. Do I have a car? Of course I do. Do most people have cars other than you know living in big cities? Of course they do. And are, 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 do you have a phonograph? No, you don't. Probably you've got a cell phone that plays music. Exactly. You've you got eight layers of technology <laughs> thereafter, right? But if you grew up in the 70s, did you have a phonograph and not be rich? Absolutely. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. For the most part. That's the point here. Inevitably, under the basic principles of economics, those inventions that are created by those taking risks and supported by those with wealth by buying it. I'm not even talking about investors. Put that aside. Work their way out to society. Of course it does. You think if, if people want it, there's capitalists and people who venture that capital That's out exactly for right. those capitalists to make it happen because they make a whole lot of money. Dave, you can quite literally get on a huge jet plane if you shop around for $200. Mm -hmm. For $200. And go to another country. Stay there, by the way, if you don't like capitalists. <laughs> but do you think that air flight started out that way? No, sir. No. It None was, of it. It was definitely for rich people. Of course it was. Of course it was. Cars, planes, you name it. And that's the way. By the way, it was the way... The rich went, and you had to be in a suit and a tie, and they gave you hoity-toity meals and all that. And now air travel is kind of like grabbing the Greyhound bus. That's right. And it cost what the Greyhound bus cost. That's exactly right. That's right. the point. Absolutely. Yeah, and by the way, you want the fancy schmancy, you can pay three grand for a first-class ticket. Sit in first class right. and drink champagne. And they, by the way, they supplement the cost of the flight because they pay far more than the expenditure. Yeah. But it's, but and you know why? Because they want to, because that's how capitalism works. It's the same thing with a laptop. Do you want a laptop right. that allows you to do what a laptop does, or do you want one with a whole lot more bells and whistles and it looks pretty and it's got a diamond encrusted case or something? That's right. You make these choices that's with right. your money, absolutely. Not government telling you what you should Not want. Not Krugman saying you yeah, have exactly. to die exactly. unless everybody has life extension technologies. That's Incredible. why I, I, I've spoken with folks and I said, you know, I'm, I have my beliefs about morality, but I try not to impose them on others, not because I think I'm wrong, but you know why? Because if I could possibly, if I were in a position in which I can impose my views of morality on others, then the next day I may not be in that position and somebody might try to impose their views on me. Yeah. And I've seen it in leftist academia across this country already. You recall, of course, that we read that article uh, on your show recently where some academic uh, at one of these left-wing uh, universities, meaning one of these universities, <laughs> right? Isn't that uh, true? Exactly. I said, some student wore a MAGA hat in my class. He's a racist. Yeah. He's a racist. Yeah. So that's the environment. You want but that? I'll let him sit in my class oh, if yeah. he's so. He, I know in his mind. Oh, yeah. I can read his mind. He hates me. I'm a mind reader. Because I'm a black man. Right? This guy's working at some sort of second-tier school, and he's a mind reader? Yeah. He should be trading stocks every day. <laughs> He'll be loaded. Yeah. yeah Krugman is, is nuts. He I has mean, gone off the deep end. Life extension for a privileged few is, by its nature, 
a socially destructive technology, and the time has come to ban it. Ban it, exactly. That's what the, the left is about. Sounds like a things. Luddite, doesn't yes, it? Yes, but that's what the left is about. It's about, oh, you, you can't say this, you can't think this, and you can't do this. That's it, right there in Krugman's article. Is there not enough news out there, Krugman, that this is the nonsense that you write about? Yeah. Off the deep end, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've said that for a long time. Yeah. He's not the he's not the smartest knife in the uh, silverware case. Yeah, he's, he's got a, a Nobel kind of Prize. A, I know he does. For what? Do they give for those things out like candy now? For what he for what he wrote? Well, maybe it's the equivalent of the one that Obama got. Yeah, that might have been. And he himself said, "I don't know why I'm getting this." To his credit. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with he that. He didn't too. turn it down. No, I'm not of sure course I would he didn't. Right? But, but uh, how it, much is the prize with that? It's I think like it's a, around a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not pocket change. Oh, let's yeah. put it that way. Okay, Robert, stick around. We got another it. half hour. All we'll right. come back. We got a lot more to talk about. There's other little things. We take little things and deconstruct them and help you understand what's really going on. And by the way, the uh, car people are out on strike again. They're in. Uh, Shaco P, Minnesota. What do they? What do they not like now? To me, oh, I don't. They're taking no, away it's Amazon. My, they're taking away. Oh, is it Amazon yeah. now? Oh, yeah, because today is Prime Day or whatever. That's right. All right, we got the news. Let's get to that. We'll be back with more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. So, Robert, I'm going to read this to you. See what you think. Uh, this is out of Philadelphia. It's a Philadelphia mag. I guess it goes along with their newspaper. Margot Kaplan is not very popular today. In the Monday edition of the New York Times, the Rutgers-Camden law professor, an NYU and Harvard graduate, took to the op-ed pages to argue that we've got it all wrong when it comes to pedophilia. She writes that pedophiles don't necessarily turn out to be child molesters and that pedophilia is not a choice. A pedophilia might be born that way. We reached her in her office in Camden to discuss. And they asked her, you really lit up the comment section of the op-ed page. Say, yes, but I have to be honest, I am getting more emails of support than I never expected. I'm shocked. I expected to get maybe 95% negative emails, but I've gotten so many positive ones. The online comments, though, are pretty uniformly negative. I know your pain. Who are you? Where are you getting these positive emails from? How much of the population has pedophilia? Well, not entirely sure. Estimates are around 1% of the male population. Blah, blah, blah. So that she says they're, they're born that way. And if they don't act on it, there's nothing wrong with it. Well, to be clear, if they don't act on it, they haven't committed a crime. So, yeah, that's so right. If, if her point simply is that. But be careful, because when people say they're born that way, the next statement often is, therefore, you can't blame them. Oh, I'm sorry. You rape a child, you go to jail. That's right. You go to jail. And there was a time that there was, there was some state had uh, pedophiles could get the death penalty, but the Supreme Court struck that down. I'm not so against it, by the way. But put that aside. The Supreme Court struck it down. Uh, so here's the thing. You can think anything you want in your head, right? You can think terroristic thoughts. I don't even want to know what some people have on in their head. Exactly. You can think <laughs> murderous saying. thoughts. 
You can think all sorts of evil thoughts. You just can't act on them. Mm-hmm. So if they came to you by environment, by nature, by nurture, I don't care. You still can't break these <clears throat> rules that we have. You can't infringe on the rights of others, and in this case, the vulnerable others who are children, without punishment. So I don't know what she's saying there, but it seems to me that she's largely not saying much of anything at all. Yeah. That is, someone thinks something bad, I don't care, don't do it. All right. We got a phone caller. Don joins us. Hey, Don, how are you? Welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm fantastic. (laughs) I just wanted to to uh, comment on Brother Steinbach there. I was in his uh, in two semesters of classes that he was a professor in at the law school, and you and, survived. <laughs> I did. In fact, I'm gainfully employed. So oh, that's I just, good. Uh, that's even more okay. remarkable. I'm such a negative influence. <laughs> what I what I wanted to say was, and I've been meaning to just and say this for a long time. I've heard you on the radio, but I, I sat through two entire semesters of his teaching and never once was I able to pick up on his political leanings. And he just said something a few minutes ago that he, he might believe something, but he tried not to enforce that or, 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 uh, you know, make that the rule for other people. And he really does. Well, I appreciate that, Don. I really do. I am clued into stuff like that. And if, if you had given any kind of indication at all, I would have picked it up and I didn't. So, I was always impressed with that because once I started hearing you on the radio and I realized you were uh, you were pretty conservative, uh, but it, that never came across in your teaching because the subjects you were teaching that I was sitting in had nothing to do with politics and you didn't bring it in. So right. I appreciate that. Well, right. and, and I appreciate you, Don. Thank you. And, and good luck and congratulations on, uh, right. on uh, being successful, notwithstanding my guidance to the contrary. <laughs> All right, John. Thank you very much. My favorite professors. See you later. Bye. Appreciate it. All right. That's a nice compliment. It's a very nice caller. Very nice caller. That was a nice compliment. I mean, when you're teaching, if you're teaching business law, you know what would be the political thing to say? You're teaching law. The only thing that... Here's... here's, Law is A, B, C, D, E, F, right? That's right. But so I teach a variety of classes, as you well know. And different classes have different opportunity for political or economic discussion. Unfortunately, to some extent, when you discuss economics, people inevitably think it's conservative, in part because the socialists and the leftists don't understand economics. You see, economics is not left or right. <laughs> I love it. It's human nature. Yeah. That's, economics and capitalism are human nature. With one twist, capitalism is economics plus an enforcement of contracts and private property, meaning someone can't steal your stuff without the state, a third party, saying, no, 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 you can't do that. They're the arbiter. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's where they should stay. That's it. But that is the most hands-off a government can be if there is a government at all. Otherwise, it's just lawlessness. You know, it's like living on an island, uh, you know, a desert island. Uh, But I have discussed, since I started teaching, minimum wage. And here's what I say about minimum wage. It's interesting. I'm not for or against a minimum wage. This is what I tell the students. 
What I'm telling you is if you impose a minimum wage that's above the market wage, which is the only time a minimum wage ma- means anything. And, and Here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. Some people will lose their jobs and other people will make more money. So is that good or bad? And my answer is if you're the guy making more money, it's good for you. And you know who makes more money? Who's that? The state. The state from taxation? That's right. Possibly. Uh, th- that's. I'm not sure that's right. I'd have to think that through. But in any event, uh, the state always seems to make more money no matter what happens. But that's a separate point, right? But the <laughs> other guy who loses his job doesn't do his job. Well, why does he have to lose his job? Because guess what? If you raise a minimum wage, you raise the cost of – if you raise the cost of production, this is very simple, some part of it, not necessarily all of it, and this is where some on the right – tend to be uh, exaggerating, some portion of that almost inevitably by math, by science, will be passed on to the consumer. So the, and so the lefties say, so what? And then some consumers will decide that the new product is too expensive to buy because there's always what's known as a marginal consumer. There's mm-hmm. always one guy out there who just barely is willing to buy that product. That's a way to prove that. Yeah. When you watch a commercial, do they ever tell you how much it will cost in whole dollars? Mm-hmm. Or is it nine ninety nine? Right, exactly. It's never $10. That's, a, that's an excellent point, Dave. Why? Because they know that there's always a marginal consumer. That and penny even means something. saving the penny will get you more customers. Think about it this way, folks. You ever buy strawberries at the supermarket? I'm sure most of you say yes. You buy them in season. I don't know. What's a, a, a basket? Probably two bucks. You know those little baskets? Yeah. Right? Two bucks? Maybe. But, but Maybe when, more. But when they're, when they're out of season, you ever see straw or cherry? Have you seen cherries when they're kind of out of season? Ten it bucks a pound? Really expensive. $9.99. I've seen them at Kroger. $8.99, $9.99 a pound. I don't buy them at that price. No. Why? Because I can buy bananas and apples and, and other what we call substitutes. At a much lower cost, but when they're two ninety nine and they are two ninety nine a pound in season, I buy them. You know what I do? What's that? I still have a cherry pie, yeah. but it's artificially flavored. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Another endorsement for unhealthy eating. No, from I'm just Dave saying. Just, that's <laughs> but the, the way point it works. is that that so, so, clearly some people are buying them at eight ninety nine a pound. Why? Oh, because yeah. they're selling them, and they can afford them. That's right, and it's fewer people. So le- yeah. few, less of that is sold. When you raise a minimum wage, fewer people take ad- advantage of whatever that good or service is. So who loses? The guy that loses his job loses, and the guy that has his job at a higher wage gains. Okay, so let me ask you. If yeah. you buy, when you buy, uh, let's say, lettuce, right? do you buy a head of lettuce, which maybe it's 99 cents a right. head? right. Or do you buy already shredded lettuce, that which is more. a bag right. that's probably half the weight of the head of lettuce and costs three times as much? Yeah. It depends what I'm doing. If I want to make a salad that is a mixture, I'll buy the mixed lettuce because I don't want to buy a head of lettuce and a head of this and a head of that. Yeah. And I got five pounds of salad. It's right. too much. If I just need lettuce, I buy the head of lettuce. Okay. Yeah. And then are you willing to spend even more? If on that head of lettuce, it says organic. I do. You see? And that's a good question. I spend more money for organic fruits and vegetables. Other than, by the way, 
those that have peels. You don't need to buy organic for oranges and, and bananas. You're taking the peel off, folks. That's where all the chemicals are. But when I want the peel, like apples and peaches in particular, and as it happens to be, by the way, cherries uh, uh, and strawberries uh, sort of collect a lot of those pesticides. So for those, I personally choose to buy organic. But if you don't, that's okay, too. That's a personal choice. I don't want some leftist making that decision for me. That's why I believe in a free market. Let them let me decide what I'm willing to spend on. Yeah. You know, I, you know and then make sure that if it says organic, it means yeah. organic. Well, and that is a problem. And a related problem, by the way, is I've stopped buying Italian-made olive oil because there was a big report on how so much of it is fake because the, the mobsters have taken canola oil and added <laughs> yeah. essentially flavoring and sell it at, at 10 times the price as olive oil. So now I buy uh, California olive oil, although I will tell you and your audience, Dave, I was buying one at Fresh Market that says California, and then I read very in very small print. From? F- yeah, California, Portugal, and various other places. <laughs> Yeah, it's a well, hybrid. Yeah, well, that's that's a scam. I, I'm yeah. really thinking that, that a lawsuit needs to happen. That's a scam. And then Fresh Market has their own brand that says in smaller letter, lettering, amongst other different styles, they have various, various styles, a California one. So I now buy the store brand California one. Beware of the one that says California in big letters on the label. It's actually not California olive oil. You know what I, what I do? I find someone who's going on a trip to Israel. And I ask him, bring me a half gallon. Oh, back. it's it's great. It's actually that's great. good. Oh, it's, it's, it's a real deal. Yeah, it's, it's the, the real good deal. Stuff. That's they have groves going back to biblical times. I'm not well, joking. The Garden of Gethsemane, which is olive trees, yeah, yeah. has been around for thousands. It's of years. really remarkable, and you get some very beautiful craftsman work uh, made in olive wood. It's absolutely good. They make little camels carved out of olive wood. Beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. All right. We'll come back, finish it up for you here when we return on the, and I, what will we talk about? I have no idea. We'll figure it out. The Dave Ellswick Show. Okay. So the poll numbers are starting to be crunched out there. And I'm sure uh, that the Democratic Party is doing some of this. And that's why you're seeing Pelosi trying to tell, you know, this. The mod squad. the, the, The squad. To settle down. Suffice it to stay, say that the modern Democratic Party, <coughs> excuse me, is not in a healthy place. The tail that is the party's harrowing leftist flank has long come to wag the dog that is the party's erstwhile and nearly vanquished establishment wing. The squad now defines the Democratic Party among the very swing voters that the party needs the court to remain politically viable in the 21st century. And as a bumptitious menagerie of ragtag pariahs who share nothing in common other than a seething sense of hatred for America and for America's founding era creed, that squad-driven party is fundamentally unfit to lead America. This is what the polling is showing. It should not be any wonder why so many swing voters have come to the conclusion that that is indeed the case. And if that is the case, 2020 is going to be a very dark period for the Democratic Party. That's why I've been saying all along, Trump's going to win. 
Trump's going to win. I can't. You you can nominate Biden. It won't matter. People have now seen enough of AOC and these others that, and you've allowed them to get up there and say, "This is what the Democratic Party. This is the face of the Democratic Party. It's going to kill your party." It's really an issue. There's no question. It's an issue, and much like was the case, you recall when we were discussing the election before Trump was elected, and I said. By the way, you said the same point, and you probably said it earlier than me. But I said, I don't think the polling accurately reflects what's going on because I believe people are not telling the pollsters who they're really going to vote that's for. That's true. And, and that was proved the last election. That's my point. I'm talking about the last election. So I think that phenomenon, coupled with the fact that the left is doing exactly what they did, when Hillary was running, she said to half of America, you guys are irredeemable. What was the actual word that, that she used? The, the uh, deplorables. No, deplorables, right? yes. Irredeemable deplorables. But vote for me. Uh, no, thank you. You know, it's like going to a restaurant. Here's a pile of dog poop. Would you like? No. No. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. I'll take the other one. I'll yes. take the hamburger and fries. Thank you. So that's the, what the left is constantly doing. They keep telling Americans that America is lousy, that they, some portion of Americans, the non-coastal, non-elite types, f- folks that live in Arkansas, yeah, knuckle folks draggers, that, yeah, knuckle draggers that are that you know, and we put that in quotes, by the way, folks. Yes, we, we don't, I don't literally mean that. Meaning anybody who doesn't live on one of the coasts, and I come, I, I, I grew up on the coast. I see the problem with a lot of folks here. Mind you, there are some uh, good communities of conservatives there as well, but not enough. And they look down on the flyover country, as they call it. And then they want your vote. Don't vote for them. Don't vote for them. And then, oh, well, we need to have... We need to have uh, popular elections. By the way, you know when they came to that great, great insight? When they lost the electoral college well that's not working for us so we want the other system yeah now. we want to try to just yeah, we want to try the other one uh not now not <laughs> constitutionally not, yeah, not constitutionally and by the way i'm not going to negotiate on something that right now the same thing that we're like when we talked about changing the method for reapportionment in terms of the districts in arkansas and the lefties now that they're out of power say oh well we don't want it to be done by the pa- by the party in control now that we're out of control yeah no kidding no kidding <laughs> No, no. Come talk to me in 20 years. We'll have another discussion. It's going to be very interesting. Reapportionment oh, yeah. comes up. I'm I'm excited to see what happens. Oh, yeah. You oh, know, because yeah. this is the first time. That's right. This is the first That's time exactly in history right. it will be a Republican governor, Republican AG, and a Republican uh, Secretary of State. That's right. We'll, we'll take care of it. That's it's right. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Absolutely. And that's not that far away. No, no, no. Uh, you know, it's after the the census. We got to get the census. Yeah, after the questionnaire that comes out that counts everybody in America, but not allowed to ask, "Are you an American?" Yeah, yeah. they can ask you how many toilets you got, but I not love, if you're an love American. Love what the president said. Are you an American? Oh, sorry, I can't ask that. Yeah, you can find out Is how that, many toilets you have, yeah. how many bedrooms you right. have. Are you, you an American? It's nay on the American. <laughs> what? What? You know, it, 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 it's so ridiculous. That's it. You can't. That it, we laugh at it, 
but it's very, very serious that the country's come to this. Dave, if you were to write this in a novel, people would laugh at you and say, that Dave Ellsworth can't write a novel. It's nonsense. Yeah. It's, a, it's so ridiculous. It's not a novel, folks. Yeah, it's, it's reality. It's what's going on. That's exactly right. And we talk about it all the time here. It's stuff like Krugman right here. Krugman's nuts. You, you just gotta. You can't. You can't allow life extension. Uh, uh, you know, technology, technology no, you to get allow, better because only the Evergarts, as he calls them, will yeah. have it. And uh, doggone it! Um, but Dave, know. in all seriousness, I, I need to make this point because you're not going to make it on on your own show, and that is part of the reason that this state now has a 75 percent Republican legislature is because of you. That's just a fact. You're not the only one. You can't take all the credit for it. But part of the reason this state has a 75% Republican legislature is because of Dave Ellswick and his efforts to make sure that we elect Republicans. Now, the next step, by the way, Dave, as you well know, is to make sure that all of those Republicans are actually conservative. Wait, what? Oh, that's right. I said it. Now it's time to start culling. That's right. And I That's talked right. about that. That's right. And so what does that mean? Dan Sullivan for Senate. Yeah. You do the math. Yep. You figure out what's going, i.e. John Cooper. And when you sit down and you look at the different uh, candidates that are out there that are running in the primary against each other. That's right. You better make sure you get out there and ask every one of them. The important questions that are important. That's right. To you. you need to be involved in the primary. That's why you, for example, we're going to have Tim Griffin as the nominee. Mm-hmm. You better go out in that primary because it will. Whether or not Sarah Sanders gets in it, by the way, uh, I doubt that Tim is go- going to be the only candidate in the primary. Uh, he's going to be the one that wins. Mm-hmm. But let's not get complacent. He is a solid conservative. So go out and vote in that primary. Vote for Tim Griffin for the governor, you know, for the, in the primary. Uh, of course, we're going to have um, uh, Bob um, help me Ballinger. out. Ballinger. Thank you. Sorry, Bob. We're going to have Bob Ballinger uh, running AG. for AG, exactly. Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, uh, Dan Sullivan uh, is going to be running for state senate. We'll have more. And we're going to call out those people that are not keeping their conservative values. But more importantly, we're going to support the continued growth of the Republican Party. Yep, that we will. And we'll do it with our common sense, common values. All right. With that said, we're out of time. Robert, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Robert will be back on uh, Thursday. He's going to be here with Michael Ship. That's going to be a really great show, to be honest with you. And tomorrow, the power panel's in, as well as the Bible Guys. Bible Guy questions. Bible Guys at SalemLR.com. Bible Guys at SalemLR.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.